Up next, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on RCR Reality Check Radio. What I want to achieve with RCR is conversation. And I think we have lost the art of conversation. With RCR, I just hope that people can learn that we can all be different, we can have our own opinions, have our own views, and have those conversations in a respectful way. Because respect needs to be given, it needs to be earned, and I think that we can prove that people of all diverse perspectives, ages, opinions, can have a platform, and we can work and talk together. And so that's what I hope we get to achieve with RCR. Just independent thought, alternative thought, and I I expect that I will be castigated by many people for offering different opinions but you know as I've said before there is no such thing as a wrong opinion opinions are like noses everybody's got one the exchange of views fair debate no cancelling no interrupting no aggressive responses we want to hear what people have to say whatever side you're on and the listener the consumer with that information, can make of it what they will. That is the mission. It's a good mission. You're on Reality Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Good morning. We've got a wonderful show for you today. Um, it's We've got Wally Richards, our gardening man. My goodness, uh, he is so good and so encouraging and one of my great delights is I feel a bit selfish because I have Wally on to help me with my gardening, but I get such a great feedback from everyone that clearly even very, very experienced gardeners enjoy having Wally on. And once you get into it, gardening is so much fun, so therapeutic. And it's also fun to talk about gardening because you get an interest in it. And this week with uh, Wally, we're actually going through readers questions and such as the fond of knowledge that wally is is it just doing that and we covered so much so stay tuned for that and also we have a longtime colleague of mine the honorable morris williamson who is one of those great politicians who doesn't have that political filter and that's why we always enjoy morris so much and he knows he doesn't he just believes in saying what he thinks, and it used to get him into so much trouble. And look, I didn't try to trick him to get him into trouble, and he didn't get into trouble in this interview, but it's just so refreshing to have a politician who just talks about what's happening and why and the analysis of it, rather than, as our Prime Minister Chris Hipkins would say, oh, I'm sorry, I haven't pre-formulated my answer to that question. No, no, you're with Morris, you just get the answers to the questions that you ask as he sees it. And he's particularly interesting because he's gone from being an MP and a cabinet minister to now sitting on council in Auckland Council. And he's talking about how different it is and how tough it is and how if you just got 11 people to stand, you could change the life chances for everyone in Auckland. But you can't, because nowadays, as he says it, who would want to stand and take the abuse and the digging into your private life, so on and so forth. So it's a very inter- interesting interview, and one way it's encouraging, 
And Morris subscribes to the pendulum view so that as the pendulum swinging one particular way, it's going to swing back. And it swung so far, it's going to come back with a belt if the pendulum view uh, holds. I'm a bit more pessimistic because I think that pendulum swings so far, we may never get it back. Uh, so that's a lovely interview. Uh, so stay tuned. You're on Rodney Check Radio, Real Talk with Rodney Hyde, and today we're having some Real Talk. People are struggling to have conversations and connect with others that they don't completely agree with on every topic. And I think that's probably the biggest problem that we need to try and solve is how after all this division and after all the separation, do we end up bringing people together again? And what does unity really look like? New Zealand faces some pretty big issues. First one is COVID in the aftermath. There's no getting away from that. Second is racial division. It's been ginned up and it's dangerous. Another issue that maybe people haven't got their head around yet is digital currency. What form does that take? Is it programmable? Will it be used to manipulate behavior and patterns of behavior? Those questions need to be asked and answered. How can you have fair, open, democratic government by people who are appointed? It's a ridiculous idea. And if that idea is taken to its zenith, then this country is in real trouble because democracy, one person, one vote, where every vote is of equal value, has got to be the foundation of a modern New Zealand. What's true, what's not true, how our kids are to be educated. And, you know, I have a great fear for the future. I think we know from history where this could end up. Thanks for tuning in to RCR. Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, or even if you don't agree with what you're listening to, then get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057. That's 2057. Or if you'd rather email us, you can at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you. So get in touch with us now. This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m. You're on Rally Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. You can give us an email at inbox at realitycheck.radio or send us a text at 2057, 2057. Oh, and I got my regular and all-time favorite with the listeners and with me. But boy, has he given me some work to do. It's our favourite gardener, Wally Richards. Good morning, Wally. Good morning. Yeah, nice day out here in uh, Martin. Bit of sunshine. I see um, through your window there, you've got sunshine too. So, yes, well, um, if you could see further around, you'd see snow. Ah, right. We've got okay. snow in the hills. We had... Um, we had... Uh, Snow here on the ground for a night. Um, okay. So we're hoping for a good ski season. The experts tell me that while the snow mightn't stay, what it does is it cools down the ground and then uh, they can make snow and it makes for better snow. And one of the interesting things, I've learned a lot about snow, I don't ski but my kids do, is that 
the tricky thing is you want sort of the snow attached to the ground and you can get a scenario where there's sort of water and then snow and the snow sort of slips away or melts and it's no good. So they're very pleased to have the ground getting cold now, ready for the big snow when winter thickens up. Okay, that's interesting. Oh, you become, you oh, I guess it's like, you know, how people talk about surfing or wine or gardening. It becomes its own little phrases and terms and how they describe the snow. And it's also like fishing. The snow's never quite right. So there's always something wrong with the snow when you go skiing. But, Wally, why don't we start with this? We want to have a few things about what we should be doing in our garden just now, but we also got some wonderful uh, questions from the from the listeners, and let's just go through them, and okay. you can answer them. And please, if you've got questions, everyone, we're going to have Wally on every fortnight, so flick us a text, or you can ring him, and you can ring Wally directly if it's an emergency. He doesn't mind. 0800-466-464. His people will answer, by which I mean Wally. Or you can email Wally at WallyJR, as in J.R. Irving, WallyJR at GardenNews.co.nz. It is an IQ test, as I stumbled. The Garden News only has one N. You'll figure it out. Now, Wally, here's a question for you. Wally, please tell me if there is a way to deal with cutty grass that isn't going to be a huge manual labor or poison my soil. They're taking over land that I want for fruit trees. Thank you. Okay. Right. Well, cutty grass, in actual fact, is used as an ornamental grass for some people uh, Mm. that like to have that native effect. Um, Grasses have become quite popular in bark gardens and things like that. Um, I I presume I'm not completely familiar with it, but I do know as a kid that – you could cut yourself on the stuff because it's got a very sharp edge. And, it's called cutting uh, grass for a reason, right? Yeah, it, it, it can cut, that's for sure. Okay, now, she doesn't want to poison the soil. So with any grass, the most potent um, killer is a chemical called Roundup, in actual fact. Mm-hmm. So rather than spray the grass with Roundup, what you could do is make up a solution of, and this is quite important, to you take your Roundup, dilute it, um, I think it's 10 mils per litre of water, and you add one mil of rain guard into it. Now, the rain guard not only rainproofs your work, but it's also um, acts as a chemical bridge. And some of these plants, like cutty grass, um, they have a resistance on the leaf that doesn't allow the Roundup to get in. And that means it doesn't work. So if you add rain guard to it, so any shiny leaf plant or hairy leaf plant that's hard to get your Roundup into, you can use um, rain guard, and it's only one mil per litre, and that acts as a chemical bridge, and that takes it into the plant, and the plant can't resist it. Now. If you make up a solution, instead of spraying it, you get yourself a clean paintbrush, and it, say about an inch wide, and dip it in that and wipe it over the grass itself. 
That means it will stay exactly on the grass, not go everywhere, and it will go down and kill the grass. So that's the first alternative, and it's very effective because Roundup really kills grass. Just help me here. Is that rain guard that you put in your windscreen wiper, or where do you get this rain guard? What is rain guard? Rain guard is one of the products we have ourselves. Um, it's on our mail order website, which is the same as our telephone number, www.0800-466-464.co.nz. You'll find Roundup there, I think, under the pest control or under disease control. Um, it's a polyfilm my film, which uh, is a little bit like, in fact, it's similar to Vapor Guard, but a different formulation. And there was a question I see that uh, somebody was asking, is VaporGuard organic? Well, it's based on pine resin, as RainGuard is, and so it's natural. I wouldn't say that it's certified organic by any means, but it's a natural sort of thing, and it's not harmful to um, microbes and soil life and yourself, etc. So you get a bit of rain guard, one mil per litre. You get a bit of Roundup, which I think you said had 10 mils per litre. I think that's the formulation they have on the bottom. And then you get a one-inch paintbrush and you dab it on. um, Wipe it. Wipe it on. How much of the cutty grass would you need to hit with the Roundup? Is it half of it or three-quarters of it? Is it all of it? Or would 10% kill it? Um, Yeah. To the best of my knowledge, you don't need too much because it goes down. It's yeah. systemic into the plant and into the root zone and um, takes it out. So, so you don't have uh, to be too um, particular. Yeah, you don't have to. You can just cover the main big leaves, mm. keep it off the soil so it's not going into the soil. It's staying with the plant. The plant will die. And presumably what would you do once the plant's died, Wally? Um, well, it will just naturally decompose there on the spot over okay. a, a period of days or weeks, whatever. Um, I suppose um, you could pull it out um, mm-hmm. if it looks unsightly. Um, yeah, I never thought of that. What do you do with it after a dead plant? If you spray weeds, you don't often go around well, I was thinking of the worry, if you're worried about the Roundup getting in your ecosystem and you've got a dead plant, chock a block full of Roundup, you might want to just get rid of it in the bin. Yeah, yeah that's that's a point. Um, but one of the problems that I see that happens is, like, uh, people in lifestyle blocks or farmers, they might spray uh, weeds in the paddock for um to control them and so forth, and um, the cattle comes in afterwards, and those plants that have been sprayed are very high in carbohydrates, sugars, right? Mm. And the stock love them, my God. Ah. And that's not particularly good for the animals. I can tell you a story there um, about yeah. how it affects the um, semen count of a bull. Um, how and- you, how, what are you doing counting semen in a bull? Oh, no, this is on a farm where they use a bull to um, inseminate the cattle, the cows, right? And um, in a particular case, this guy had used uh, Roundup on weeds in a home paddock, put the bull in there he had just bought uh, for that purpose, and uh, 
Lo and behold, of course, the bull chomped up all the what's names. Uh, prior to buying the bull, he had done a semen count on the bull. Yes, yeah, sperm count. Sperm count. Yeah, yeah sperm, sperm count. Yeah. And um, it was good high. But after um, browsing the Roundup infected plants and grass or whatever, and he got another sperm count done, uh, it would drop right out. It was, it was useless. How funny. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and well, uh, that's an imagine what it's doing to us. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know if it affects our spoon count or not, but uh, <laughs> I, a bit of a worry. Yes, yes. <laughs> you worried well, Wally, aren't you? No, yeah, I'm true. <laughs> if I'd known that, I wouldn't have had a vasectomy. <laughs> Too much information, Wally. Um, I'll come back. I would want to. Uh, so that was Roundup was one thing, and then you had other suggestions. Right. We have a compound called ammonium sulfamate. Now, not sulfate of ammonia, but ammonium sulfamate. Now, here's an interesting story. Um, probably a couple of years ago, a chap from the UK living in New Zealand contacted me, and he said, um, can we get ammonium sulfamate in New Zealand? And I said, never heard of it. What is it? What does it do? And he told me the story about how in the UK they used to be able to get it. It's um, powder crystals, dissolves very readily in water, and then you spray it over weeds. Weeds think it's nitrogen, so they take it in very readily into themselves, and it completely destroys the cellular structure and then converts back to nitrogen. I said, really? He said, yeah. And no harmful effects to the environment, et cetera, et cetera, right? Okay. So we went out, and initially I brought in a tonne from India, then I brought in another tonne from China. Um, and, yeah, it's, it's magic stuff. Ideally, like anything that's more natural, you need to use it on a sunny day when the soil is on the dry side. And my first experience with it, using it the ideal rate, which is 200 grams per litre of water, I filled up my knapsack, and, and it's the one that I only use for weed killing anyway, and started at one side of the house, went around, sprayed all the weeds, around the house until I got back to where I started, and lo and behold, they were dead already. It was no. like paracrot. It, it was a very, very quick kill. Then I found if you used it at, um, say, around about 100 grams per litre of water and ideal conditions, um, some uh, annual weeds, they would die off over a period of a couple of days or so, uh, harder to kill weeds uh, would take a bit longer, and some things like grass, um, it didn't affect. So here was an interesting thing, that you could use it on um, broadleaf weeds in your lawn if you know the correct amount per litre of water by experimenting. So say, for instance, you might find at 80 grams per litre of water, um, it will kill the broadleaf weeds over a period of a week or so, but uh, not unduly affect the grass. And another use of it, and I think there's a question coming up somewhere, 
too, is that it's used for composting, right? It speeds up the composting process, mm. breaks down woody material, and we do sell it as a super stump rotter where you apply it to a stump and then you cover it with a bag and it eats into the wood and breaks it down. I, I remember seeing a story on the internet where uh, a chap in the UK uh, dropped some on his shed floor, the wooden shed floor, and he wanted to know how to stop his floor rotting away. Um, so it's quite reasonably effective. On and what is it called again? Ammonium sulfamate. And where's it come? I mean, I know it comes from India and China, but what is it? Where, is it just mined out of the ground or is it bird poo or what is it? Do you know? Good question. I don't know. Um, probably like sulfate of ammonia, um, which is related to it to its point. Um, it would be manufactured. Um, mm. Yeah, good question. And, I, and I don't know. If Can you just take your result? 80 grams per litre, I think you said. Because, mm-hmm. I don't know, the home gardener doesn't want to be doing too many experiments, do they? They just want to get it and put it on. So if they've got broadleaf weeds in their grass, they don't want the flaff of putting different amounts on in little wee squares. Um, they just want to get it and kill the weeds. Could they just go with 80 grams and call it the job done, or would that be a bit cavalier? Um, once again, uh, with any spray, it doesn't matter what type of spray, whether herbicide, insecticide, uh, fungicide, um, you never bowl in and use it without knowledge. Okay, Oops. Most dangerous. Like Oops. commercially, if you were to go and spray your paddock of cabbages with a insecticide, and then found that all the leaves turned brown and the cabbages were no good, you'd, you'd be out of pocket by a lot of money, right? So what people do was to get the knowledge, they do a trial spray, and that should be to just a few, um, one or two plants of that variety you, you want to spray. Um, and as a result of seeing what happens over the next week or two, whether it's had any adverse effects or not, then you go and do the whole, what's that? In fact, with some chemicals, um, that is in the instructions. Do a trial spray first before you do. Otherwise, you could be losing a crop worth several thousand dollars or your um, plants in your garden, which you cherish um, because you didn't take the precaution of testing it. Mm. Well, I'm, I'm, I've got to learn a bit more patience, Wally, because I tend to look at the instructions um, and then be on the safe side to double everything. <laughs> ooh, I'm, ooh. I'm very naughty. Um, so the thing is, with your plants, because you're in a peculiar circumstance or a particular, no, that's the wrong word, particular circumstance, it's quite wise, and they say this when you're using cleaning products and that too on your carpet. You don't do your whole carpet in a go. You sort of do a bit that won't be noticed if it goes wrong. Right. Um, to try it first, and and you suggest waiting a week or two, and then you're into it, and then you'd keep a diary, and so next year you'd have a rough enough thing of what you could do. 
Yep, yep, that's that's How the way it goes. How interesting. So even even yourself, if you were dealing with a new product, you wouldn't go in if you weren't confident of it without actually just doing a couple of plants and waiting. Yeah, true. Um, for the home gardener, it's probably not so important because yes. you you might be losing, say, a dozen cabbages, right? You've got you the backup of the supermarket. Yeah. But if you're a commercial grower and you've got an acre of cabbages, yeah. that's a lot of money invested in that, and you yeah. don't want to go and spray the whole lot got it. Uh, without the knowledge that it's, not, it's going to do the job you want to do without doing the damage you don't want to have happen. Mm. Mm. And, and is Roundup uh, a good product to be using if you use it um, carefully and putting it on the plants? Would you spray Roundup in your garden? No, no way. You just put it on the plant? I don't even do that. Okay. No, I prefer not to use it. Uh, Roundup. Because of your sperm count, Wally. <sighs> There's people that become sensitive to Roundup, and generally speaking, the home gardener, um, without <laughs> being silly, like for instance, uh, spraying with while his feet are in sandals, he should be in <laughs> in a pair of gum boots. So, yeah. not to get it on your skin because it does go into your body um, yeah. quite severely. If you've got a backpack, not to have actually a raincoat or something on, so to prevent any leakage going down your spine, which is something I learnt in um, getting my licence uh, years ago when you had to have a licence for some of these mm -hmm. things. Um, most dangerous um, to have Roundup or any herbicide or chemical going down your back to get to the base of your spine and then where it goes in. Not good mm -hmm. for you. Um, so... Um, generally speaking, the reason that I won't use Roundup, which I used to years ago, I thought it was a magic. It, it killed everything pretty well um, without too much problem. But then I had Sharpay dogs, and my Sharpay dogs started to get bad skin infections. So I took them to a chap who had the knowledge of being able to determine what um, the problem was, and he tests them, and he said, it's Roundup. So, and, wow. of course, after you spray your weeds and your drive and all the rest of it, the dogs are walking through it. Yeah. Right? And, of course, they get it onto their skin, and then what do animals do? They lick themselves. Mm. And, of course, they get it into their body. Your Sharpay dogs have been, for the gardener, the equivalent of a canary for a miner. Yeah. They, they're good indicators for you. Well, I learnt about um, the chlorinated water. Yeah. We'll come back to water in a minute. Mm. I want to do that water. So um, you've learnt over the years, Wally, to be very observant of things. Of course, yes, because with plants, you have to be um, to know when they've got a problem, when they haven't, uh, how healthy they are, how well they're growing. Um, a lot of gardening is actually with your eyes, looking and noting what yeah. is happening. Yeah, well, I've got to learn that because I tend to live in a bit of a um, fog and I can walk past things and not notice things. So I have to become – that's very interesting about 
testing and uh, observing, and I tend to be, well, I'm learning with the gardening. I'm learning to be a lot more patient because mm. you know how you, we live in a here and now world, don't we? We I, I plant the seed, I want the cabbage. The idea of waiting for my cabbage. <laughs> I pop out every day and I say, where's my bloody cabbage? And it hasn't even sprouted and I'm thinking I'm feeling it down. However, it's a bit like Christmas when you're a kid. When they do sprout, I'm absolutely ecstatic. Um, right. And I've got some I got some seeds sprouting. They popped up through the soil. And I've thinned them out now, Wally. And I did exactly what you said. Um, I did it in the jolly rain because you said to get the, get the soil wet. And um, as it happened, I, I, I was out there and it started to, it had been raining. And then it started to really rain. I thought, well, this is an ideal time. So I went and it was, they were sitting in compost and I got my uh, Brussels sprouts, cabbage and collie and onions. Goodness knows if they'll survive. And I thinned them just with a weed trowel in my fingers. And I put them in a bunch at each end. And they looked very, very sad, Wally. Um, mm -hmm. Even the ones that I thinned because I'd got a bit disturbed as I thinned around them. But boy, you know, the next day they were sitting up happy, happy as. Right. And I was so excited. And even the ones that I'd been a bit rough with because I shifted them and I was getting wet and I was getting frustrated that I put into a bunch, um, they're, they're sitting up happy too. Yeah, yep. Right. Oh, well, so uh, I, but I am, I am very excited about my, 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 uh, Brussels sprouts. And, um, I've, as you know, I should tell listeners, I did exactly what Wally said. I kept my eye on, I found Facebook was better in my area than neighborly. And I found a old hobbled up tunnel house, uh, that a guy wanted just cleaned up. And I went over and picked it up with my trailer and uh, disassembled it. And I put, I've put it up and um, I put some of my uh, seeds and then I planted some lettuces and some tomatoes. And my little tunnel house is as warm as toast, Wally. Yeah, nice. And Wally, I took a picture of it and sent it to Wally and um, we get horrific westerly winds coming over the southern alps tearing down the kawara river and across our bit of dirt and wally said oh have you attached it to the ground yeah <laughs> and of course i had i had put it up uh very well and got everything looking square and plum and wonderful but it was just sitting there and I thought, when that wind comes down, it blows everything over. It'll just about blow your car over. So I um, have quickly uh, attached a strop on it onto the fence, and I'm slowly securing it down so it'll survive the wind. And I think I'll be okay when I'm done. But um, I'm loving having the tunnel house, Wally, and I'm surprised how warm it is in there. Mm, yeah. It's and moist. It's yeah. very moist. Can it be too humid? humid? Can it um, be too humid? That can be a little bit of a problem. Um, humidity can carry fungus diseases yes. and they can attack the plant, but the plants love moisture at the okay. same time. So 
it's a matter of keeping an eye, and this is what you're going to have to do, is learn your, to use your eyes, yes. check your plants on a regular basis, like each day, and if you see any signs of any moulds or uh, any rotting or anything like that on the plants, then you're going to have to use some redemial, remedial um, spray, such as potassium permanganate, Condi's okay. crystals. It's yep. a favourite one of mine. Um, yep. Quite safe to use. Makes the water go purpley colour, as you learn at school in science class. Well, um, how do you use Condi's crystals in your in your greenhouse? Okay, a quarter of a teaspoon, uh, which is supplied in the container, um, which we actually sell uh, potassium permanganate or Condi's crystals. Um, that per litre of water sprayed over the foliage. Um, it works a treat. And what does it do? Does it dry the plant out or kill the fungus? Or Yeah, it kills the fungus. It's oh, wow. an old remedy um, which is used for athletics foot. Oh, yes. Remember? So yeah. if you have fungus on your toenails or so forth, you, you've got a uh, bowl of water, put some Condi's crystals into it, soak your feet into it, um, and that would kill the fungus disease. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> And and uh, saves giving your money to the pharmaceutical business. Well, you can't. They don't have it anymore. No, but I mean, they have all these chemicals in the tube. Oh, right? I see what you mean. Yeah, yeah true, yeah. true. Yeah. Um, you with real talk with Rodney Hyde uh, on Rally Tech Radio. We're talking to our favourite gardener, uh, Wally Richards. And Wally, doesn't matter what we talk about. You're a font of knowledge, right? I'm I'm still struggling with those that poor guy buying that prize bill. And spraying his weeds to get the paddock all nice for his bull, <laughs> sterilizing the bull. <laughs> Which his wife, his wife actually told me about it, <laughs> and she was laughing. Yeah, he thought, <laughs> he, he thought um, instead of paying uh, to have the cows inseminated, you know, artificially, uh, he'd buy himself a couple of bulls and um, do it the old fashioned way, the good old fashioned way. And yeah, uh, my goodness, but he fell over badly. Now, we've done this question, but let's do it again. Is VaporGuard an organic product? And remind us what VaporGuard is used for, Wally. VaporGuard is often used as frost protection. And being organic, I say natural, not organic, but it's derived from pine tree resin. It's made in Canada. Um, It's a film which... um, is basically natural. Um, mm. the, the main attribute at this time of the year is frost protection. So if you have passion fruit vines or tender plants, um, citrus trees in your area down where you get uh, quite severe frost, mm. you spray the foliage with vapor guard. Um, within three days, the foliage would go to a much darker, richer green. Uh, the plant can photosynthesize and get more energy from the sun. And as a result of doing so, uh, it creates a uh, substance called glycosol. Glycosol is antifreeze. And so the plant has its own little antifreeze system working. The cells freeze, but the antifreeze um, prevents damage. And as long as you only have the occasional frost every few days, it works a treat. 
But if you have two or three frosts night after night, you need to add frost cloth for the second frost or something. Otherwise, because the plant hasn't had a chance to fully heal. Yeah. It's all it's also used as stress scar. So if you're transplanting anything, you spray the foliage a couple of days beforehand, over and under in the particular case, and before lifting and transplanting, ideally to do with your seedlings that you buy in punnets, um, just give them a spray with vapor guard, um, leave them for a couple of days. It hardens the plants off. Mm. It protects against um, salt spray for people living by the coast. Uh, windburn, another damaging thing for uh, young plants. Um, spray the plants when you plant them, um, shrubs, trees, whatever, um, with vapor guard, and they will establish quicker and better. Um, it's got so many uses. In the drought times, you spray the foliage under and over, and it reduces the plant's need for moisture by about 40%. Nice. Here's our next question from a listener, Wally. How can I look after my kitchen window herbs like basil, mint, and coriander? Okay. Ideally, they should be on a windowsill if you're going in, in that situation on a north-facing window, ideally. So they're going to get plenty of sunlight uh, most of the day. Uh, often they're grown in the kitchen, on the kitchen windowsill, and predominantly the kitchen windowsill will be facing more to the south or east and west, right? So not yep. to the north, right? Um, it just depends on the design of the house. Um, on the windowsill itself, plants get quite a bit of good light anyway, and some have those window uh, glass houses, you know, that extend out from yep. the house a little yep. bit. Oh, magic, because yep. they've got light overhead then, Yeah. right? Yeah. Now, on a windowsill, the light is coming through the window, so the plant's leaves will stretch to the, the window pane mm -hmm. because they, they're looking for the maximum amount of light that they can get. Mm -hmm. When the light is overhead, like in one of those window boxes, mm -hmm. um, they stretch upwards because that's where the light is, and this is what you want. On a windowsill, it means that your plants will all be facing the foliage to the glass. So about every week, you turn the plant around um, 180 degrees, right? Yeah. So the leaves are then facing inside, yeah. and within a day or two, <laughs> they will turn around and face out. Plants that move. Poor plant. <laughs> yeah. So you, <laughs> you're giving the plant something to do. <laughs> um, on a inside a house and so forth, probably the worst problem is insects um, can get in. Uh, I was amazed the other day. I've got some uh, little plants in um, punnets on the kitchen windowsill. And my God, there was a praying mantis. I don't know wow. where it came from. And he was on one of the plants. And I thought, oh, that's nice. Yeah. Um, and then I looked the next day and he'd gone. I don't know where he went either. But he, And the window wasn't open. So he had to come through the door or something to get in, find the plants, sit there, say hello to me, and then disappear. Move on to the neighbours. Yeah. Yeah, go off. Um, you can't have many flies in your house for, the, for him. The. Um, Probably the biggest problem with container plants inside would be mealybug, which is root mealybug. 
They live in the uh, soil uh, or in the compost or the growing medium. And if you take the plant out of the pot, you'll see all these white wispies around the edge of the um, inside of the container, uh, which is a good indication you've got root mealybug. Um, the adults will come up and colonise on the foliage and they're little white um, sticky insects. Um, they can be sprayed with, say, pyrethrum or um, Wally Super ne uh, Neem Tree Oil, um, but you've got to kill the ones in the container itself. And containers, um, the best way to do that is using our neem tree powder, in which you sprinkle a little bit of that on top of the mix and then cover it, with, if it's inside, cover it with a little bit of um, more mix, potty mix, whatever, and the neem properties will leach out into the root zone of the plant and as a result of that, insects uh, in the soil feeding on the plant will get a dose and stop eating and die. Um, simple as that. Very safe, very effective. That way product to do it. was called what, Wally? That's neem tree powder or neem mm. tree granules. Okay, and you can get that if you give Wally a call 0800 Wow, there's a lot to it, isn't there, Wally? Actually, the neem granules, um, a lot of people have problems with citrus trees, right? It's so much as white fly and mealybug, scale insects, et cetera, et cetera. Now, a nice citrus tree um, is quite dense in its foliage and it's difficult to spray. And if you don't have to spray, it makes life a lot easier. So with the citrus tree, all you do is get um, our neem tree granules. And uh, I recommend ours because I've got a lot of neem properties in them. They're very dark. And you sprinkle that underneath the tree from the trunk to the drip line and give it a light water. And in a period of about six or eight weeks, there won't be another insect in the tree. They're all gone. And oh, goodness. What is, what is it neem exactly? Uh, neem is a tree in India um, in which they collect the kernels off and the kernels um, they cold press to get the oil out of them and the residue left over they call neem cake and which we buy and we call it neem granules because it's larger pieces mm -hmm. or neem powder which is a nice um, powder to work Round with up. and use. Um, it's because there's only been one extraction of oil out of the kernels, it means that they are very dark and they have quite a, a smell to them. It, it's a, I, I think it's a pleasant smell. Some people don't like it, right? But that smell in itself ha has a lot of advantages to disguise the smell of your plant. So, in your glasshouse, come summertime, you're going to be planting up your tomato plants and so forth. So what you do with your tomato plant is you put some neem powder in the planting hole, right? So mm -hmm. that will be to break down and be taken up by the roots. And then you put some neem granules on the soil mm -hmm. around the plant, right? Mm -hmm. Now, the smell from that, because you're going to be watering, it creates a nice smell, that smell will disguise the smell of your tomato plant. 
So white fly flying by doesn't know your plant's there, right? Yes. Now, in the old days, before neem came along, we used to plant marigolds in the glass house, right? And the marigolds um, would make us use close the glass house up at night, and of course the smell would build up. And then when you open the vents and the door next morning, the whole place would stink of marigolds. Now, because it smells like marigolds, you can't smell the tomato plants. So in insects, wow. Insects would just fly on by. They wouldn't come in because there's no point of going in there because there's no tomatoes. It's only marigolds. <laughs> <laughs> My goodness. Uh, anything else that you need to do for your herbs like basil, mint, and coriander on your windsill? Um, ideally, have a saucer underneath the plant, of course. This time of the year, particularly with basil, which is a heat-loving plant, um, you've got to keep it a little bit on the dry side. Um, you don't flood the pot with water because at night time, um, when it gets cold, if the potting mix is wet, uh, it's going to intensify the cold. And I can give you an example of this. Like on a cold winter's morning, if you go outside and your hands are dry, it's cold. But if you get your hands wet, my God, it's 10 times colder. Yes. Right. Because it's so, evaporating off you, isn't it? And it's evaporating yeah. off the soil and the plant. So with your container plants in glass houses or inside and so forth, it's most important that you keep them a little bit on the dry side. They still need a drink of water, mm -hmm. but not much. And, mm -hmm. and ideally warm water, a small drink, just to moisten up. If they plants get too dry, of course, they start to droop. And once again, you use your eyes and you see that. And you think, oh, you need a drink. So you give them a small a drink of water to refresh them. And plant food. Now, one of the interesting things is a product we have, which we call magic botanic liquid, right, which is humate and fulvic acid. My partner um, decided to try this on her houseplants. She got very enthused about having houseplants during the period of time we had coronavirus, right? And a lot of people did. The houseplants went ballistic, literally, yes. right? So she had a, a nice little Monsteria delicia, you know, the um, yes. plant, and it was probably about a metre high. Well, my God, <laughs> watering it with magic liquid, we've had to cut it in half. It reaches the ceiling, and, and that was in a period of... Only a few months. It just went ballistic. What um, is that product called, Wally? Magic Botanic Liquid. My goodness. And what's right. special about that? Well, it's humate and fulvic acid. It's derived from lignate and it's extracted. It's actually made in New Zealand, um, in New Plymouth, and it's normally used in the garden for um, as a spray or as a soil drench. The spray is most effective. Um, sprayed over the foliage of plants, the plants will uh, – on my website, which is the Garden News website, it lists all the properties that um, Magic Botanic Liquid will do. It helps the plants photosynthesize better. It's got silica in it. That's a great advantage. It um, cleans up um, locked-up fertilisers in the soil. Um, yeah, 
and and literally your plants will grow twice as fast and twice as big by a regular spray of that. And when we say regular, like once a week, once a fortnight. Um, on roses, a chap in Auckland told me that after using it, his roses, which never had perfume before, now have perfume. Um, they're healthy. They grow better. And he even won um, the street gardening competition um, as a result of using magic botanic liquid. His garden was just so good. And then the following year, he was banned from the gardening competition. Because <laughs> <laughs> he had a secret ingredient. Yeah. He, you can he, get that secret ingredient. Give it a ring, 0800-466-464. Now, here's a question for you, Wally. How do you get rid of oxalis in my pot with my standard rose? Now, how do I keep the rose growing in a big pot? Thank you, Mark. Right. Okay. Oxalis in a pot. Right. Um, first of all, let, let's look at the aspect of growing perennial plants in a container. And this is where a lot of people don't realise that after a period of time, and if we're normally talking about two or three years, the plant becomes root-bound. All the roots form into a big cluster uh, inside the pot, and as a result of that, the plant dies. So any container-grown plant, first thing is you never use a urn-type container, which the top is more narrow than some part in the container. Okay. You can use them for annual plants, you know, flowering yes. plants, etc., etc. Good as gold because it's not important. But a perennial plant, you can never get it out of a container like that without smashing the container. So mm -hmm. it becomes a problem. So the the top must be the high, the widest point. Got it. Of the thing, right? You take your plant out of the container, you rose, and you lay it on the ground. And then you get a, um, a cross saw and you cut the bottom third of the root system off, straight through, right, okay. And that's all the roots that are curled around the base, et cetera, et cetera. Then you use the same container, you fill the bottom of it up with compost to the level in which the amount has been removed of the mm -hmm. roots. Mm -hmm. And then you plonk it back in, right? You can also, at that point of time, before you plonk it back in, put some sheep manure pellets or some um, goodies in there uh, as food for it, blood and bone, whatever, and then you plonk it back in. Your plant will have a new lease of life. All those roots that have been cut will then form new roots and start filling up that area, and, of course, it's got new food there, and so you'll have a flush of growth in the canopy, and it'll look really good. You have to do that about every two to three years. If you don't, after about, say, four or five years or so, the plant will look miserable and die. Will the plant itself, with its roots being cut, every two, three years being cut maybe by a third, will the plant itself keep growing, Wally? Yeah, no problems. It, it will love it. How amazing. Yeah, um, because 
when the roots get so bound like that, even though you may be feeding uh, slow-release fertiliser on top of the soil or you may be watering in um, liquid fertiliser, the, the roots are not able to take it up of any consequence. So mm -hmm. you're wasting your time because all the roots are, are just bolt jammed together and they can't operate as they should do because the container has forced them to be like that. In the ground, of course, those roots will spread out and stay spread out, and they can keep on spreading out infinitely. They don't, but they could do, yes. theoretically. Um, so they're always alive and working, not cramped up. Um, mm. Yeah. And, and then if we go back, we've got that with the rose, now the oxalis, what do we okay. do? Now, when you take um, particularly plants outside container plants, quite often they get quite a bit of weed in, um, blown in, weed seeds, etc. and so you have a, a mass of weeds. When you take them out of the container and lay them down, it's quite easy then to remove those weeds got from it. the top, right? Now, with oxalis, uh, of course, it's got little bulblets, and... So you can get the plant and the bulb, the main, the mother, but the little bulblets, you have to be very careful that you extract them as well because each one of those will become another oxalis. There is that compound we talked about before, which I have suggested for people to use in a garden situation. With the paint. And this is the ammonium sulfur, mate. Oh, yes. Right. Now... I'll tell you a story. There was a, a nice old lady contacted me one time and she said, look, we want to kill the clover in our lawn um, because we want to re-sow it. We're not worried about the grass, um, but uh, we want to kill the clover before we re-sow the lawn, right? And I said, well, okay, use the ammonium sulfur, mate. Mix it up 200 grams per litre of water, sunny day, dry soil, spray the foliage of the um, clover with it, and that will kill it. Well, a couple of months later, she rings me up and she says, um, we've got a problem. I said, why? What, what, what's happened? She said, well, we're putting the lawn seed in, but it won't grow. I said, really? I said, what did you do? She said, oh, like you said, we put it in a watering can and we watered over the over the clover. I said, I said, spray. She said, oh, you did it kill the clover? Oh, yeah, clover died, but it's still active in the soil subsequently. So when they're putting the uh, lawn seed in, the grass seed, of course, it's getting composted in the soil. And so it won't grow because it's, so when you spray it, you get a much lower dose. You get a fine spray, and when she watered it, she put a lot in. Yeah. And it went, into it, the, it went into the ground, not just on the leaves. Yeah, because spraying, of course, you're spraying the foliage. You're not oh. drenching the soil. See, right? that's, I would do that. That's how stupid I am. I just yeah. don't think those things through. Now, oh. on the same basis as that, say you've got oxalis in your garden and the foliage are there and so forth, it's a curse um, because if you try to pull it out, you're disrupting the little bulblets on the side and yeah. they spread, right? Yeah. 
the way I used to suggest to people in the past was to bury it. In other words, keep on putting cardboard and, and compost on, and so you're burying it over a period of time. But with ammonium sulfamate, you can mix it up into your watering can and you carefully water it over the foliage down where the crown is into the soil and that will compost the bulb and the bulblets. Now, if you repeat that every time you see some um, oxalis comes up, give it a drink with the ammonium sulfamate and you should as long as you don't disturb the soil, over a period of time, completely clean up the oxalis. There you go. And if you had some old Roundup in the garage, could you get a little bit of that and dab it on with a brush or a cloth? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think Roundup kills oxalis. It doesn't kill clover in the lawn. Okay. Because clover is immune to Roundup. Um, But, yeah, uh, that's another way. And it may go down and kill the mother bulb, but not the bulblets. Because what we're doing when we drench the soil where it's growing is we're killing or composting. It's not killing, it's composting all the bulbs in the soil. So if I'm using the ammonia sulfate on my oxalis, how do I apply it? (coughs) Excuse me. Um, uh, 200 grams into a litre of water and you water over the foliage down into the soil. Won't that did, kill the rose? Um, the, it's only going to affect the area in which you watered it into. So if there's some roots of the rose there, yes, it could kill those roots. Or No, it won't kill them. It will just um, compost, compost them. them, which means that the roots then will re-root again. Okay. Uh, it's like going down and pruning the roots in the soil. Okay. And so, okay. So you can use ammonium sulfate on your oxalis. Sulfamate, sorry. Yep. Ammonium sulfamate on your oxalis in your pot, keeping it to the oxalis, and every time it pops up again, uh, give it another dose, and over time you will the, the boblets will give up. The, bol- the little bulb bol- bits will give up because you're getting them all. Well, in actual fact, they will get composted as well. Yeah. So well, composted well in the soil. It, it can be used, shall we say, for convolvulus um, by drenching the soil uh, to kill the roots of convolvulus, particularly if they're away from other plants. Um, it would do damage to um, the roots of plants, preferred plants, uh, if you weren't careful, but those, as long as you weren't watering the whole area around the plant, it would re-establish a new root system um, from the damaged roots that have been composted. Um, so, yeah, uh, a little bit of care, a little bit of caution, uh, but it can solve a problem, which is yeah. a hard problem to um, fix. Yeah, here we've got a, a question from Karina. And it's, uh, hello, Wally. Can you please tell me the best remedy for whitefly at this time of year? Okay. I I presume it's in a glass house, but it may be out in the open as well. Uh, The products that I prefer to use as sprays is Wally's 
neem tree oil, uh, super neem tree oil, and Wally's super pyrethrum, mixed together at the prescribed rates and sprayed just before sunset, right? And you're spraying under and over the foliage with them. You repeat that about every three to five days until you've got control. And an alternative to that, or one that you can use in between times, is hydrogen peroxide. Now, hydrogen peroxide, I've just started um, utilising that recently. That's 3% hydrogen peroxide. We actually have it with um, magic botanic liquid added to it. And the idea with this is it will kill the eggs of the insects. So you spray the plant, um, can be done any time during the day. Uh, I didn't find any adverse reaction uh, in sunlight. <coughs> Excuse me. And, yeah, after that, this was in one of my glass houses, which had a reasonably bad infestation of white fly and insects. Uh, one spray, within a few days, activity had remarkably reduced. Noticeably reduced. Mm. So, one time with the neem oil and pyrethrum, uh, say a week or so later with the uh, hydrogen peroxide, and then a week or so later with the neem oil and pyrethrum again. Um, so, you can get it under control. Outside, the same thing can be applied. Um, the problem outside is. Your target plant, which might be a tomato or whatever that you're focusing on, is only one plant with the pests. In other words, just a little bit of further away is a plant. It's also a host plant to the same pest. And you might clean up your plant, but within a few days, the pests from the other plant have come across and recolonised the plant you've treated. Right. So in your outside situation, you need to look around and find out other plants in the area which have got the same problem and treat them all. Got it. And one of the problems, of course, is often the plant that's where they're coming from is over the fence yes. next door. And the people next door don't mind having yes. <laughs> that plant with fence because they're not gardeners. They don't yes. care uh, yes. about that. And unless you can go next door and talk to the people and say, do you mind if I spray your blah, blah plant um, because I'm getting a problem? And a lot of people are quite happy about that. Mm -hmm. So um, um, inside a glass house, so you've got fairly good control. Got it. Um, one thing I've noticed, Wally, and I'd like to talk to you because we had an earlier email about water. And I have to say, you, my powers of observation are getting a little bit better, but this was quite dramatic. So when it was dry, I was running um, a little hose down my rows and dripping water into the plants. And I was doing that because I was very conscious of conserving the water where we are. And it was very hot and very dry. And I found that excellent. I'd just leave it run and it would deliver, each wee hole would deliver one and a half litres. Was it an hour? I can't remember. Mm. 
it was very slow drip, but it meant it, it, I noticed it got quite deep. Um, it penetrated rather than, you know, a hose flicking around, spraying it willy-nilly. I did that because I didn't have enough pressure because we're just running water, you know, literally out of a stream. But I noticed what you said. It's been raining a lot. My goodness. The plants love the rain and they're mm. greened up. And the difference between rain and just watering them has been quite dramatic. Right. Yep, it is. And there's two reasons for that. First of all, if you've got chlorine in your water supply, yeah. you're killing the soil life, right? Yeah. And the soil life can recover very quickly. In fact, uh, with microbes in the soil, you can have three generations in 24 hours. So uh, when it rains, of course, they're getting moisture and they can grow. And they've got a period of time before you get your tap water out again so their populations can build. So the plant gets the advantage of these microbes breaking down organic materials or fertilizers or whatever so the plant can feed. So the plant has a good time. You get the chlorine water out of your tap and you water that into the soil and bang, you've just killed off millions of microbes. And I'm going to come back to that point, yeah. Right, so that's the problem. Another that's aspect, one reason, and the second reason, yeah. The second reason is nitrogen is brought down out of the sky and onto the foliage of the plant with the rain, and, of course, they get a, a boost of nitrogen, a nice, mild dose, and that they love that because mm. nitrogen is the growth factor, mm. right? So between the two things, the plant grows and looks healthy and, and perks up, and I'm a very happy little plant. Yeah. Right. Well, I, I was stunned by it. And, of course, because I'm taking it out of the stream, goodness knows, um, this is potable water, actually. Um, it hasn't got chlorine in it. But tell us again, because we got an email about this, tell us again about the water on your garden from your garden tap. Because I think every council in the country now is probably pouring in the chlorine. Oh, yeah, and the fluoride. Um, the now, the fluoride aspect in the soil, to my knowledge, it probably doesn't have any great detrimental effect, but it, to our bodies it has a very bad effect in actual fact, as I've learned. Um, but the chlorine, it has a bad effect. It's a poison. I, they, over in places overseas when they're uh, having wars and things, they use chlorine to kill people. My well, God, the World War One was chlorine yeah, gas, yeah. And of course, it's going in the water to kill the microorganisms. And so, if it's killing the microorganisms in the water, it can't be too good for the microorganisms in the soil or your body or your body. Yeah, your guts needs those microorganisms, right? Right. And if you're drinking a lot of chlorinated water. Of course, you're killing stuff inside your body. Yeah. And then your kidneys have to filter that stuff, chlorine out of your system. Yeah. So what's your solution, Wally? Okay. Um, you can have a housing with a 10-micron carbon bonded filter, which uh, goes inside the housing. That snaps onto the tap, and that removes all the chlorine out of the water. 
and we'll do, generally speaking, about 16,000 litres. We, we sell them through our mail order website, which is that 0800 website. Um, it's $140 for the housing and the filter, and the replacement filters are $40 each. So relatively inexpensive. And if you don't have inside the house for your drinking water on your tap, then you can simply use the water coming out of the filter housing uh, outside by filling up flagons. So you get a short little piece of hose, about a foot long, snap that onto the out of the housing, outlet, get your flagon, fill it up, take it inside, put it in the cupboard, put it in the fridge, and there you've got non-chlorinated drinking water and you've got it for the garden and for yourself. In some cases, like here in Martin, the, the amount of chlorine in the water is so bad, we use the same um, housing and filter on our shower so that it removes the chlorine. And it makes the shower very pleasant to have a shower. You where, notice the difference? Oh, remarkably so. Um, With the soap or just on your skin? On, uh, on your skin, yeah. And, and the other thing too, when you wash your windows or your car, and when it dries, there's streaks. You've noticed that? No. You, you don't I'm have not... chlorinated tap water. You don't wash your no. car. Yeah, <laughs> probably the latter. But it's probably more particularly, Wally, look, I don't notice things. You know what I mean? I, oh, okay. I, I my wife's always complaining. Like I can I can walk past a complete pile of rubbish in the kitchen or something and not even notice it. You know what I mean? Because I'm thinking right. about Wally's show. I don't know. But um, I'm the last person to ask because everyone else is saying, we look at that streaky window. And I say, what? Um, yeah. um, and I didn't even know here whether it's chlorinated. I suspect it is because after that um, problem somewhere up north with water and it not being too healthy, the councils have all taken a very risk-averse approach, haven't they? And they're pouring the chlorine, and even Christchurch was having chlorinated water when I was there. Mm, and yeah. Christchurch had beautiful, beautiful aquifer water, um, and they're pouring the bloody chlorine in. Um, so, yes, I, I'm sure we are. I'm sure just about everyone is. Which is ridiculous, really, because it's bad for your health, um, and it's not needed. Because a lot of councils will use UV to treat the sewerage, right? Yes. UV light? Yes. And, and that kills all bacteria completely. Yes. Now, all they have to do is treat the um, water supply, town water, with UV. It yes. kills all the bacteria yes. so simply. They pass it through UV channel. Um, you can buy UV um, things that you can have in your home. Like if you were taking water out of your stream or out of somewhere where there may be um, bacteria and you're concerned about that or out of tank water, you can have a, a little power UV light. Yeah. The water passes through, all the bacteria is zapped, and the water is bacteria-free. UV and is so, the answer. So you would never now, after your experience, and you might like to repeat that for listeners in case they missed it. Just repeat the experience you've had with chlorinated water because it astonished me, and I know it astonished many listeners, 
And it's well worth repeating, Wally. You you explain to us your experience with chlorinated water. Okay. Charpay dogs. I was one of the original people in New Zealand to um, import and breed Charpay dogs. Charpay dogs, um, hereditary, have very weak kidneys. And generally speaking, most Charpays will die of kidney failure, right? Now, they are the canary in the um, in the coal mine because what I noticed was originally with chlorinated tap water, I'd fill up a bowl, they would refuse to drink it, they'd go to a muddy puddle, but if they didn't have a muddy puddle, they'd have to drink when they're thirsty. My Sharpay originals, they died five, six, seven years of age. Everyone, kidney failure right? Then I learned about the um, chlorine in the water and how badly it affected the soil life and, and the plants in the garden. So I put filters you on You actually the... noticed it, didn't you, on your lawn, I think? Yeah. Well, how I learned about it was because I imported from Australia some microbes which they were freeze-dry, right? They're, in other words, they're on stuff. Um, they came in you had to um, put them into a bucket of water or a container of water, and they said non-chlorinated water. And I thought, oh, of course, because chlorine kills bacteria. And then you put an air bubble in, you put a little aquarium heater in, you bubbled away for 24 hours, and you breed, brew up billions, billions and billions of microbes, beneficial microbes, which you then would add to non-chlorinated water and water into your garden or over your plants to increase the microbial activity in the soil, right? Mm -hmm. And, of course, the the key was non-chlorinated water, and that's when the penny dropped. But we're using chlorinated water in their gardens. So... I got hold of the housing filter, put that on the tap, and within a week or two, I noticed a difference. Because like you said, when it rains, everything comes to life, right? When you use chlorinated water in the garden, everything goes backwards. Your plants start to get rust and black spots and diseases. They don't look happy, right? Then it rains again and everything comes back to life, right? Now, using filtered water, removing the chlorine, it's not quite as good as rainwater, but it's the next best thing. Mm, and, amazing. And yeah. your dogs noticed it, right? Tell well, us the dog story. what happened once they started, uh, they would drink the water straight away because it was filtered. There was no poison in it. And, and they've got more brains than us uh, in that department. And so those dogs... From then on, my oldest lived to 15 years of age. Three so times longer. Doubled the lifespan yeah. of the animals by not having to put stress on their kidneys, filtering out the chlorine. Now, um, you've got the the filter and the filter housing, $140, and then a replacement filter is $40. Tell me, how, how, how long does that filter last? It does 16,000 litres of uh, water before it is full of um, chlorine and it 
the water just stops literally. Had, oh, it literally stops flowing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you you don't have to have an indicator. You know you've done sixteen thousand liters. Mm. As it comes to the end of its life, the water flow will slow, and then stop, and then you have to take the filter out, put a new filter in, and uh, away you go again. And now. And- Typically in your house and in your garden, how often are you replacing the filter? Now, that's interesting because it depends on the amount of chlorine yeah, that of the council's put in the water. In Palmerston North, my outside taps with the filters on, I would get two to three seasons. In other words, two to three years out of a filter. In Martin, I'm lucky to get three months. No. Yeah. And even on our showers, we're changing about every six to nine months because the showers, you're not using so much water um, as opposed to in the garden or with irrigation, et cetera. But, yeah. um, I I understood with water, and this is what I do with our drinking water, I I put it in the fridge because I understood that if you leave it sitting, the chlorine – breaks down and uh, uh, and the thing i do you know i don't even know this i just i might be repeating some old wives tale in my head or not but i understood that if you if you left the water overnight somehow the chlorine would remove itself but maybe i'm wrong about that okay i'd love listeners to let us know about their experience with chlorine and the water and indeed other things um please send us a text 2057 uh or email us at inbox at just because it's been such a recent thing in so many areas where they're putting the chlorine in and wally's telling us such a dramatic story it's fascinating to me right now take for example if you've got a swimming pool or a spa pool now you can either use salt or you can use chlorine to kill the bacteria in, yeah. in the swimming pool or the spa pool. Now, they have to keep on dosing it because the sunlight, it's not in, in your cupboard in the fridge that the chlorine is going to disappear, it's and it's sunlight. not so much by boiling the water, it will help a little bit, but sunlight will right. dissipate yeah. the chlorine, right? Yeah. And particularly if there's water movement, like you've got a little fountain yeah. or something, or an air um, yeah. pump with an air bubble, yeah. To uh, activate the water, the chlorine will disappear and you really quick. certainly notice it when you've been to a swimming pool and you can feel the chlorine mm. um, on your skin. And I mean, you're showering in that every day. Yeah. yeah. And presumably you have good bugs on your skin. That's right. Getting off. Yeah. And your health is affected not only by the chlorine gas, because in a shower, it's the worst thing because the hot water it makes, turns it into a gas. And it's only mild, mind you, but it's not good for you because um, if it was a heavy dose, you'd be dead. Wally, you're uh, fond of information. I'm into this. You can get those filters from Wally. Uh, Give him a call, 0800 466 464. Wally, we've just done these questions and had an old net up and we've filled up our hour uh, and we haven't got on to actually other gardening things, but we'll catch it up in a fortnight. I can't tell you how much I enjoy talking to you, Wally. Oh, thank you. I enjoy talking to you too. Well, you're interesting. Well, you've got <laughs> we've got great listeners, I think, who are like us. And the one of the things we've worked out with our listeners, Wally, 
is they enjoy the real talk. But the other thing is they do enjoy a bit of a giggle and a bit of lightheartedness. And that's one of the things that you notice now, isn't it? In the legacy media and in public places, you can't actually have a bit of a giggle or a bit of lighthearted bend to it. And not about being nasty or anything, but just people don't seem, they seem to be so po-faced recently, mm. don't they? It's all flown on from that COVID. There's not a lot of joy and happiness. And that's, again, what's so wonderful about talking about gardening because it's the origin of civilization, Wally, isn't it? It's 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 us going from living as n- nomadic tribesmen wandering around trying to uh, get a berry and catch a, something to eat versus building a village, building a town, building a city, writing books, you know, painting paintings. All that civilization has flown out of gardening. Right. Yeah. True. And and when and I'm finding when I go gardening, I find it um very, very enriching of my of my soul. And I had no idea. Um and I do like the idea of, you know, controlling my pests and using natural products and of, you know, altering the microclimate with a bit of a tunnel house and all those things. And you get such a kick out of a wee plant sprouting. I've finished my lettuces and my carrots that I planted. And that's how I started gardening because my dear mother died and she was a wonderful gardener. And when I was cleaning up the garage, I found some seeds and I literally threw them into the ground. And we've been eating her lettuces and carrots for weeks and weeks. Right. The amount of money we've saved. I mean, it's a it's it's a lot of dollars a week you're spending on veggies, and we've just had these lettuces and carrots that cost nothing. Right. And it was so easy. You threw them into the ground. Threw them into the ground and forgot about them. You didn't go and put them in nah. individually, pray over them, nah. and, and 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 do all the bits and pieces. Nah. You you just let nature do it. Yeah, probably now that I'm trying, it won't work. <laughs> oh, Wally, uh, I look forward to talking to you in two weeks' time. You have a great fortnight. We'll catch up, and thank you. That was Wally Richards on The Gardening Show, Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. You're on Rally Check Radio. You can send us a text at 2057 or email us at inbox at radio, and you can give Wally a call. 0800-466-464. He loves taking your calls. We always joke that he has his people answer the phone, but it's him. Uh, or you can email Wally, wallyjr at gardennews.co.nz. That garden news has one in. But Wally actually prefers a call because it's a bit like when you go and see your doctor or the motor mechanic. You'll tell them what's wrong with you or with your garden, but they've got some questions to sort of try and figure out um, what it is. But do drop us a line because we'll have more questions each fortnight that we have Wally on. And I think as we go into spring, we might have to have more Wally because the gardening the gardening business is going to uh, wind up. We'll talk with Rodney Hyde. Thank you for listening. Thank you. This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m. You're on Rally Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Uh, flick us a text, 2057, or an email, inbox at rallycheck.radio. 
Well, you're going to love our next guest. It's the Honourable Morris Williamson. I don't know about the Honourable, but the Queen said he could have it, so he's got it. Now, Morris Williamson is famous for actually saying what he thinks. It's probably not the best strategy if you're going to be a politician or a cabinet minister or indeed an Auckland councillor. But Morris Williamson is very famous for being a very talented communica communicator. Uh, he led New Zealand, particularly into the information age with computers and the internet, uh, and he could explain it, not just so that the public could understand it, but so that MPs could understand it. And New Zealand uh, did so much better at all of computing and internet, and no small part to Morris Williamson. He's had a very, very interesting life. He now sits as a councilman. I'm going to say that word, uh, on Auckland Council. And so we're going to hear about that, and we're going to hear about Morris. Good morning, Morris. Good morning. Now, most important thing first, when I texted you about this interview, you said you were with your mother on Mother's Day. Yes. And you said she was 100. She's over 100. She still lives in our family home in Matamata. She still goes out with a Zimmer frame and prunes her roses. She's got a lovely big photo of King Charles and Queen Camilla, who sent her a birthday message. But what I found hilarious was uh, a year ago when I was saying to her, look, if we can get you through to later this year, mum, you'll get a letter from the Queen. She turned to me and she said, I don't think so. I said, oh, no, it's it's automatic. We, we've notified uh, the powers that be and it'll come automatically. And she said, I just don't think it'll be from the Queen. I think it'll be from King Charles. And I said, that's a dreadful thing to say. And it <laughs> turned out she was right. She's a hundred. What a yep. great age. And got her marbles. Oh, shockingly so. Uh, she'll she'll call me up from time to time and say, why the hell did Christopher Luxon have to say that last night on the news? And I said, I don't even know what he said. She said, well, it was stupid. He shouldn't be saying those things. And I said, well, mum, maybe there was a good reason for it. And maybe there was some validity to it. Well, it's just silly. And she said, it won't get voters on side. And I think, boy, I wish I was like that when I'm 100. Yeah, so I she lives on her own. She lives on her own. She lives on her own in a family home, and I'm the only child, so I've got to spend a lot of time down there with her. But uh, I did have a sister years ago, but she died from a brain tumour, which is something I'm never going to die from, they tell me, because you have to have a brain. Ah, uh, yeah. Yeah, it, I'm lacking that, so it's fine. But, you, uh, you know, so she lives in her own home, and uh, she gets her little meals and sticks them in the microwave, and I've tried to get her into a retirement house, village or something. And she just yells at me, I can't believe my only son would want to put me into a prison. So she she's very happy and she loves her life and um, the brain is still active. Rodney, I, I went to many retirement villages when I was an associate health minister back in the 90s and I saw people in their 80s sitting in a lazy boy chair looking out the window and oblivious to who they were, why they were there, what was happening around them. And I thought I'd rather not be, I'd rather be able to, exit stage left than that mm. but mm. she's still i mean she's diminishing in stature and she body is frail and the zimmer frame needed to get around but smart you know just what you know i get i get toweled up every time i talk to her for having not done something or not said something well she was 40 when president kennedy was shot <laughs> um oh my goodness how wonderful is that and she can ring you Yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I'm in her speed dial. 
and it comes up on my screen. And even if I'm at a council meeting, if I see her calling, I will go outside and take it because if I don't take the call, it'll be a lot of grief later in the day for why didn't you answer when I called you? My mother died last year at 94. Oh, wow. And and one of the things that I noticed, and she had all her faculties right up to the last minute, one of the things that I noticed that was quite strange is that everyone you know is dead, if you know what I mean. No, look, I tell you, that's one of the things that we've we've laughed together. (laughs) One of our best laughs is my best advice to her recently was don't buy green bananas. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> because well because you may not be around by the time they oh, I see. <laughs> by the time they ripen yeah by the oh. time they ripen but the other thing was we'd planned and know who would be because we held a huge birthday party for her on her 80th birthday in Matamata at a big function center and she didn't know about it and people came from overseas and from everywhere for it and it was a phenomenal thing and I've now gone back through the videos and the pictures of those and nobody, nobody, including my dad, nobody who was at that party is still alive. And so we're going to have to sort of go out to John Minto and rent a crowd or something yes. to get them along to be to make a numbers at a funeral because she all of her friends from the bowling club are all dead. All of her brothers and sisters, they were all Catholic. And so she's one of 12, I think, and dad was one of 13. All gone, all, all, and long gone. Some of them long, long, long ago gone. And so I keep saying to her, Mum, I don't know what we will do for a funeral. I don't know who we would have there. It's strange, isn't it? My my mother seemed to prepare herself for death when she had a very dear friend pass away. Mm. And it was like that was it, you know. She loved her so much and they had such a good time together. And when then she died, it was sort of like it, my, it, it really affected my mum, her friend dying. Yeah, and um, because you know all her, all her, all her siblings were long gone, and um, to be a hundred, uh, and to look around, it's quite funny though because, you know, you think of the kid that bullied bullied you at school, he's gone. Um, you might have had a few uh, caucus colleagues. Um, that annoyed you in your life, and you think they're gone, and <laughs> you sort of win because you're still standing, right? You're still, I'm still. There's a good song. <laughs> I'm still standing. But yeah, now, what, what's what's also incredible is because we are not believers of any sort. I'm a I'm an arch atheist and don't believe in any afterlife. And my mum has come to that belief as well now, even though she was a very staunch Catholic as a child. She's happy to go now. She says, you know, my time's here. I really have done everything I need to. I don't really want to hang around anymore. Mm. I've had a great life, and uh, I'm happy to go. And she accepts. It's, she accepts that from the day she dies, her life will be exactly like the trillions of years were before she was born. Yeah, exactly the same as those years. Yeah, I can accept that, mm. and I can accept that for my mum and myself and my dad. Mm. But I tell you what, I struggle with on the atheism thing, Morris. Yep. yep. And. You and I grew up in a Christian world. Yes. And there was a wonderful ethic. There was a wonderful set of values. There was a shared set of values. Even as an atheist, you could move around that world and you had those values. There was someone 
looking over your shoulder. There was a higher authority to government. And I look at where we are today, a non-Christian, non-believing country, and it's all me, 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 lying, dishonesty, no standards. Oh, no, I was a boy, but now I've decided to be a girl. All this sort of nonsense. And I don't feel as though we have a grounded belief. And I know you and I love reason. We love argument. We love trying to get to the truth. But I wonder now whether it's enough. Well, look, I accept that there may have been some moral standards. The fear of uh, being burnt in hell had a lot of people scared to make them behave. Uh, I, I still just don't. I don't get it. Mm. Uh, I'm just going to give you one statistic now because this. I, I did a degree in physics, and when I was doing physics, I just literally lost all belief. And I'll give you one statistic. I want you to remember this: if you take every grain of sand on the earth. That is, you went out with big buckets and you got every one, every grain of sand from the Sahara, the Gobi Desert. You took every from the beaches of Hawaii and 90 mile beach, every grain of sand on the earth. You work it out. If you multiply it by a cubic meter and how many is in a cubic meter, it's estimated there is 10 to the power of 18. So that's a one with 18 zeros after it. Huge number. It's a trillions of a trillion of a trillion grains of sand on the earth. And since Hubble was released, not James Webb, because that's only just gone up and we'll be able to see a lot better and a lot more. But since Hubble was released, we've been able to identify 10 to the 21 stars. Isn't that that means for every grain of sand on the earth, stand on the beach and pick up one grain of sand. For every grain of sand on the earth, there is a thousand stars in the universe that we know of. Mm. And that makes you realize just how small we are. Mm. We are just so trivial. We are so inconsequential. Or how wonderful God is. Sorry? Or how wonderful God is. Well, he was very busy to make that many, (laughs) and and he did it in six days. And And it's a funny funny thing, isn't it? Because when I was a hardcore atheist, and now I'm sort of wavering, (laughs) there was a Muslim physicist whose name escapes me who got the Nobel Prize in researching black holes and what have you. And I mean, that's one of the features too, isn't it? Because people who are religious come from all walks of life. It's not like you're a clever scientist and you necessarily drop your belief. No, Uh, no, that's wrong. That's wrong. I can tell you that in the United States, they publish some figures that all of the senior scientific community across the board around about 87% of them are not believers. Oh, poor thing. It's huge. It's huge mm. percentage. There are still some people. Uh, there's a guy who did a whole lot of work in, um, in in the whole evolution space but still believes God started it. He's one of the senior people equivalent. Yeah. But they're, they're a handful relative to the vast bulk who no longer believe. So, yeah. It's, gonna, it's, a, it's a very interesting thing, and, I mean, um, it's it's a lovely discussion to have and to have it in a way that doesn't get people flustered and upset. Mm. But I just, uh, I'm very troubled um, by the lack of values and principles. Oh, so am I. And, and you can't now interact with someone 
with a sense of a shared experience or shared understanding of what the right thing and wrong thing to do is. Well, because you get you get cancelled the moment you say anything that a small group don't want you to be able to say. Yeah, I, I saw a brilliant clip the other day from Bill Maher, the British, the American comedian, and he was talking about this idea of transiting from one gender to another. And he says, you cannot go to a liberal party in LA now. You just cannot go to a liberal party, you know, drinks and orders with friends, where there won't be several parents comparing the experience their child is having in transiting from one gender to another. And they'll be chatting about it. And, you know, my Susie's heading towards being a Jimmy and so on. But he said, in Youngstown, Ohio, they don't even know what you're talking about. So yeah. he said, are we... Are we just experiencing a whole lot of it geographically wise in LA and it doesn't happen elsewhere? <laughs> or are we creating this by being the sort of the woke we're trying to? And I think, you know, there's a lot of merit to that because I, I grew up in Matamata and went to Matamata College. I didn't know this sort of thing even existed. No, I didn't, I didn't know. I didn't believe there was such a thing as homosexuality until I was 19. Yeah, not yeah. I probably don't know what time I thought that, but but that's a different thing. That is to do with how people were born. Of course, and that makes me laugh as well. During the sort of the gay rights debate, people have said we've got a right to be treated like how we were born. That's what we are. And I keep thinking, yeah, okay, I'm fine with that. But now you've got people are saying, no, we don't want to be treated the way we were born. Mm. We want to be something different to that. And I think, oh, gee. It's a whole different category. You're quite right because you can be a boy or a girl and you're attracted to your same sex, but you're still a boy or still a girl. And even with transgenderism, when you and I knew transgenderism, the transgender ladies typically who were men understood that they were men who preferred to be women. And they weren't inserting themselves into women's spaces or into women's sports. Right. Now we've got this activist madness where guys with beards and all the paraphernalia that comes with being a man yeah. decide that they can walk into the changing rooms of your daughter. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry. I, I'm old-fashioned, but I believe there are anatomical differences yeah. and muscular and skeletal shape changes that men have compared to women. And I know that when you put the women's wall black rugby team up against the men's, they would just get crushed in the first mm. scrum that occurred. They're just different. And then yeah. to say, to then to say, oh, one of those blokes can go over and play with you and be in your team and say, because he identifies as a woman. Uh, look, I, I'm sorry. I, I'm, I'm pretty much pleased that I'm heading towards the end of my life on the planet because it just, it's 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 crazy in my view. If you do want to do those things, I'm a big libertarian and I'm a, I'm a fan that Me you too. live the life you want. But please don't then insist that I'm going to go in and compete in a women's swimming race where I can be half a length down the pool before they've even got started because I'm so big and strong, but I'm actually a man. Mm. But how weird is it, Morris, that even women or you and I standing up for our wives and daughters and sisters and yep. mums uh, and saying, look, we don't mind what you do, but you're not allowed, men are not allowed, they can't put on a frock and walk into the right. women's toilets or changing rooms right. or stay in their hospital wards or prisons and you can't play in their sports 
right? You can put a frock on and pretend you're a woman. That's fine. Go to it, yeah. But we're not even allowed to publicly say that without being physically attacked. But that's the whole cancel culture thing, you see. what we If you're a very small group of people and you want to make sure that your views make the headlines all the time, the moment anyone steps slightly into the space that you're protecting, create this huge kerfuffle. I, I, I know someone quite well in the media who was talking to editors at the Herald the other day saying, why do you give this... Uh, I think it's Lal, Shanine Lal. Why, oh, do you, God, why yes. do you give him so much coverage when he's a 0.1 of 1% of the public? And the answer was because it gets eyeballs on screens and it gets readers. And uh, the more we do of that, the more our readership flourishes and grows and the more people read it. And so if they were to go along and say, well, no, we're not going to cover that person anymore, that would be detrimental to their commercial interests. So... Now, somebody who represents a very small percentage of the public, incredibly small percentage, gets way, way more coverage than anything that's just... And whom incites violence? Well, that's the problem, although I understand it's only us cis white men that cause all the no, violence. No, that's right. We're under mentally... But here, I don't buy that for a minute, Morris. What, that it's all us white blokes? No, I buy that. <laughs> um, I've always blamed you. Um <laughs> No, what I don't get is that it's eyeballs. Because imagine this. If it was about eyeballs, they would have a column each week for Morris Williamson explaining why this is nonsense. Now, that would get read too. And you'd create it, create this debate. The debate, yeah. But they won't. No. So I... Like, I never click on the Herald now or stuff because it doesn't speak to me. No, uh, there's no, nothing there of interest. No. So there's something deeper which I don't understand because you're but, right. It's but, such a but small But dig thing. into this world a bit more, Rodney. Just dig yep. into this. You have a minister in the current government go on television and says it's white cis men yes. that cause all the violence in the world. Those yes. were her words. I've checked yes. them and gone through them. Now, I would have thought within seconds the Race Relations Conciliator would have come out and said, that is outrageous, mm -hmm. that is a racist statement beyond belief, and mm -hmm. Marima Davidson should withdraw it or we'll issue some form of a public censure saying it's disgraceful. Ming Foon never said a word. He agrees with that. But if I had said... It's all brown women that cause all the what, whatever in the world. You would have been labelled a racist, and quite rightly so, and you cannot group every person and every category together. But what I want to know is why is there one rule for one direction, but the moment it's the other, oh, you can't say that, you mustn't do that, that's not right. And I, I'm, I'm hopeful the pendulum will swing back. I think the pendulum has gone so far. I mean, there were there were years when people had no rights to say what they wanted or who they were, and I think that was wrong. And being a strong libertarian, I encourage them to have their rights, to have their views and their say. But it's now got to a point where you're scared to say anything to the contrary or debate it or say, well, I think Marima Davidson was wrong because I do. 
I don't think it's all white cis men. And if she was right, then it means in countries in Africa where there are no white cis men, are you telling me there's no violence in those countries? Really? Well, we, no, we caused that too. We caused it from just afar. Yeah, because of colonialism. <laughs> so, I Prince mean, in the, it was we, Prince in Harry the, I'm and com- his... I'm confident the pendulum will swing back. I really am. Well, you, I'm so pleased to hear that because you are an optimist. Uh, unfortunately, since uh, spending a lot of time with you in Parliament, uh, I have had the wonderful experience of having three more wonderful children who are at primary oh, wow. school. Wow. And I've got to tell you, if you've got kids at primary school or grandkids at primary school, you're not so optimistic. No. Because the – and I go on a lot about this on the show, and I think people think – that I've become obsessed and fixated on it. And I guess I have because people don't realize how pervasive transgenderism is in the curriculum across all studies and being constantly discussed. And my kids at primary school, they have 10, 15% in year eight, a non-binary. No. Yeah. No. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I know. I, I got to. Because you say to kids, you say to kids, right? Yeah. Oh, you know, and it's the cool thing to be oh, gay, yeah, yeah, yeah. to be trans. But the thing that amazes me, it's like that thing on um, in California. The parents love it. Mm. Particularly the um, mums. Oh, little Johnny, you know, and he's um, going through stages. Yeah, and oftentimes, this is what they discovered in the UK: it was boys that were gay were being quickly identified as trans. And yeah. um, if you're in the UK, they'd have you, they'd castrate you before you knew where you were. Um, and in the United States now, twenty five percent of high school kids are non-binary. See, I, in I California. Mean, I, I just don't believe that. I mean, I just... No, of course something. they're not. Of course no. they're not. But it's like being a goth, right? When you yeah. were growing up, you were yeah. like, what were yeah. you? A teddy boy or you played in a rock band or... Yeah, I, I, uh, was Beatle, I was Beatles era and my dad banned Beetle boots. Yeah. So I used to keep them in a friend's car. We'd go out for the night playing in the band. When we'd finish, we'd meet back at his car. I'd take them off and put on ordinary shoes because if I ever came into my house in the farm and Matter Matter wearing beetle boots, these winkle pickers, <laughs> big sharp, I'd get a smack round the ears for it. Mm. But everybody wanted long hair because the Beatles had it and everyone had wanted beetle boots. So there is always trends and fashions. That's and right. It's cool. But you, what worries me about this is some of these changes are a bit like tattoos. They're not reversible. No. And then the other thing is I notice, and this is uh, mental, they call it now mental health issues, is the kids are confused. Yes. And they don't have, and again, they don't have a rock-solid standard. Even one and one doesn't necessarily equal two, Mm -hmm. if you know what I mean. And so they're in this world that's adrift and um, they aren't being taught, they're being facilitated and everything's airy-fairy and if you're white, you caused all these problems and you're responsible. If you're a boy, you're a bit toxic. It's, It's this undercurrent 
um, that's there, which I think is very destructive of the values that you and I hold dear, the values of Western civilization, which isn't a racist thing. It's a, it's a cultural thing, which many races subscribe to mm. and appreciate. That is but, being systematically undermined. But I, I can live with someone uh, in years gone by wanting to be a goth and painting their face white and their hair jet black because 10 years later they could be running a big company and being incredibly mm. successful. What I worry about is the genital mutilation that goes on, the, mm. the, the steroid changing, the beta blockers that are, that, that, that are changing the entire chemistry of someone's body irre irreparably. And I think, well, you know, we've got to be very careful about that. And you, even you, if you don't go in for the um, physiological castration, the chemical castration or the physical castration or whatever, even the mental effect of believing of course. that a boy can be a girl is pretty weird. Anyway, Morris. All right. That's great. How long were you an MP? 30 years, and you get less for murder. <laughs> you loved it. Uh, I did for a, for a quite a long time. I didn't towards the end. I got really bored with it. I should have left earlier than I did. If I have any regrets, I said it in my valedictory. My time was up at least a couple of terms earlier than that, and I should have just gone. I just always had a great hope of new things. I One of my great prides as I fought a fight with uh, the whole National Party caucus for some years about fiber optic. And John Key said, look, Treasury, we, this is before we went into government in 2008. John Key says, look, we've been advised it's not economic. Uh, it's too costly. Uh, fiber in the backbone, yes, but not to the not to the residents. So you'll have cabinets in a suburb and then it'll be copper. And I kept arguing, I've been overseas, I've met with the sort of the gurus of where this is going. Fiber optic will be the new electricity or the new roading network of the future. And with it, we can participate on the world stage as, uh, along with anyone else. And uh, I remember, and I said this in my valedictory, if you're ever masochistic enough to watch it on YouTube, and John Key was sitting there, I said, one night at a, at a meeting of the sort of kitchen uh, shadow cabinet, I put my paper up for the fourth time and was pleading with them to give it some consideration for our policy. And he stood up and he threw the paper across the buddy desk and he said, you can have your effing uh, bloody fibre and walked out. And I stood there with a, sat there with a big smile on my face, looked around and said, do I take that as a yes? <laughs> and, of course, we did go to the election in 2008 fibre. And I can tell you now that when COVID hit, if we didn't have that fibre optic backbone, this country would have been stuffed. Yeah. No, good on you. Mm. And um, 30 years in MP, you were a cabinet minister and with Jim Bolger? Yeah, with Bolger and then with Shipley and a minister under Key. Mm. And you enjoyed being a minister? Uh, yes, but was always hard to get things that I wanted done because you've got to get everybody else to agree. And again, in my valedictory, I said, you know, like Frank Sinatra, regrets, I've had a few, but, well, not too few to mention, actually. But, <laughs> um, but you know, I pleaded with that cabinet in the 90s on about three occasions to sell TVNZ. I oh, imagine it. They would, have got, a, no they would have got a billion for it back then. Oh, yeah, that's right. There was simply no reason for us to own a commercial television channel. Uh, and the argument I got back, and Jim Bolger was one of the leading advocates of this, 
is it's our way of promoting New Zealand culture to the people, uh, and that's why the government must keep owning this, because uh, commercial stations won't be interested in New Zealand's culture and identity. And so in my valedictory speech when I was leaving, I pulled up the, the schedule of the programmes on TV1 that night, not TV2, which is clearly nothing but commercial nonsense, but TV1, supposed to be the purveyor of our culture and the essence of what we are as a people. And the programmes went something like this, uh, My Kitchen Rules Australia, mm. followed by Voted Off the Island Samoa, followed by uh, Grand Designs UK, a programme about um, buildings, followed by Coronation Street, and finally after that a programme, a British programme called Four in a Bed. And I turned in the house and said, Murray McCulley will have to explain that to me later <laughs> on. <laughs> that is, if it's Murray McCulley, it is Kiwi culture. Because I didn't know. But they were nothing to do with promoting New Zealand no. culture and ID. And it never was going to be because it's it's uh, neither fish nor fowl. It's trying to make its own way by selling advertising and so on, but it's not able to do that making product if it's going to be just culture and identity. You would have and- got a phenomenal price for it back then. I was prepared. I, I didn't want this and I would have fought it, but I was prepared if that had been put into a fund and the the income off that fund was used to promote New Zealand culture and identity programs. Mm. I, I didn't export it. But why we had to keep owning it, and I went over and I, and I never got never got it. And we still own TV and Z today, and every day that passes, it's withering and dying on the vine uh, because no one in my household, no one here watches free-to-air television. No, no one. No. So you went overseas for four years to the States, but I want to pick up. uh, You've successfully been elected to the Auckland Council. Yes. And I want you to tell us about that experience. What was it like turning up to council? Well, it's an enormous cultural change because – I'd always been used to a political world where when you made an announcement, if the Minister of Finance like will do what the budget and announces things, that's it because you know that it will come to a vote in the House and you've got the votes because you use the whip and the numbers are there. And I also know that the Minister of Finance will not consult with even his own backbench until Thursday uh, the one hour before we used to always go into the caucus room and we'd get locked in there and the Minister of Finance would, or uh, or probably a proxy because they'd normally be doing the lock-up with all the journalists. But someone, the, dep- the Associate Minister of Finance, would come and brief us and say, well, what in the budget, one hour when we go into the House, we're doing this with health, this is how much is extra for this, and there'd be rounds of applause and so on. Well, in council, the world is so different, it's not funny. First of all, anything you want to do, you have to consult. You have to consult exceedingly widely. And, of course, the problem with that is the vast bulk of the New Zealand public have a view that, you know, everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. And so when you talk about cutting expenditure, you'll have people say, oh, I agree, you've got to cut it. But you mustn't cut the bit I'm involved in, the arts, or you mustn't cut forest and bird or you mustn't cut the healthy eating program that our council runs. This this consultation, Morris, it's not just with the councillors, it's with the community. Oh, and and it's a very formal process. You can't just in legislation. 
we went and chatted to three people and they're okay with us selling the airport shares, so we're done. You've got to go into an absolute formal consultation round. You've got to publish proper documents. You've got to let every organization that wishes to make its submissions and you have to collate them. All the local boards have to have meetings where people come to their, have their say and all of that gets collated and comes back. Now, I've got a real concern about that for one reason. If you, the, 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 I've always had a view that the thing that will make you more unpopular in politics than anything is to fail to, is unfulfilled expectations. If you promise you're going to do something and then you don't. I know that in 1990, we promised we were going to get rid of the surtax. And when we got elected, not only did we not get rid of it, we actually increased it. And it, re it created huge anger from the public who had believed when they were voting national, we were going to do something. So when we've said, when I said during my campaign, I was going to get in there and rein in the spending monster and stop all of the growth and expenditure because it's been blowing through the roof and we've run up 11.7 billion of debt and so on, you think, wow, that's a great line. I'll vote for him. But I'm chairman of the expenditure control committee at that place. And I have no more say than the other 19 councillors or the mayor. We are one vote. And every time we'll take a vote, it will matter whether you can get 11 across the line for anything. And then you get, you get the argument back as, well, we haven't consulted on that, so you can't even do it. And that consultation requirement is set in legislation. Yes, it's in the Local Government Act. And my view is that if the government truly believes that that's a good thing that you have to go out and consult, if they truly believe that, then why don't they adopt it for central government budgets? Mm. Because it's the total opposite of leadership. Yes. Yes, it is. I mean, you, you're being run by the mob, and as you say, as as the mob, yeah, 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 I want my rates to come down. Yeah, 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 I want the debt to be managed. Yeah, 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 but, oh, don't cut my funding. Mm. And you multiply that. And, of course, the ones that want to be consulted with it are the ones that are actually receiving the funding, not the ratepayers. In general, the vast bulk of people making submissions were the ones that were participating in in the council payments or, or council support or council buildings made available. Your ordinary Johnny ratepayer out there just gets his rates bill and goes, bloody hell, it's gone up again. And um, I can't see why. And so I've done some real heavy analysis on the spending in there. And there are particular divisions within the council where their spending over the last four years has increased. In fact, just so I don't get it wrong, I decided to put it up here on my screen for you. Let me give you some of these numbers. Um, certain divisions have had over the last four years, and this is while inflation was running at 13%. The increases for customer and community services, uh, which is a budget of 200 and, or 306 million, is up 56% over that same time frame that inflation ran at 13. The infrastructure and environmental services at 288 million is up 49%. The group services, 194 million over that time, 30%. Uh, planning division from 43 million to 66, up 53.9. All those increases, which are huge, occurred while total inflation was 13%. That's over and like so, two or three years, is it? Uh, four years. It's over four a four-year year period. 
it's disgusting. And it's on a railway track, right? The train's right. just hurtling down the tracks. The tracks are sort of the legislative planning process for the budget. And a Minister of Finance, as you say, can't sit there and yeah. do a budget, tell Treasury what's what, tell yeah. them what, 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 what they need, have the party support and do it. Because in a council, you've got this legislative requirement to consult. You can't rely on the other councillors to back you. Correct. And more particularly, even if they said they will back you, you can't rely on them to stay backing you. Correct. That's, I think, the difference. Central government, you both have the whip in terms of knowing you've got the votes to do what you've decided. Mm. But more importantly, the Public Finance Act, you know, and the Fiscal Responsibility Act and a number of others, they they absolutely hamstring departments yes. from going on a knees-up Mother Brown while spending chase because they've got to apply every year for budget increases and explain what they are and quality should get through the door. I don't think it always happens, but it should. And the, and the Minister of Finance and Treasury can be saying, we don't believe that a big number of the line items you're spending have got quality spending. There's a lot of wastage in there. There's fat in there that you can cut and so on. Uh, but we don't have that control over even the various divisions within the council. And so without that Public Finance Act control, without a finance minister who says, I'm putting my foot down and the new spending for the coming year will only be X, and everybody's budget has to fit within that magnificent total of X. That doesn't exist. And so I, I really feel for Mayor Wayne Brown because his instincts are great and he wants to do things. And a lot of people say, oh, you know, I hope Brown will do the following. But they've got to understand he gets one vote at yeah. that table. It's not yeah. like the prime minister who can decide, you know, this is what we're doing and you get announcements and it was announced this morning, Prime Minister John Key said that we will be doing this and you sit there and you go, oh, well, okay, well, I guess that's right because he's got the numbers and when we go to the House, Mayor Brown sits there sometimes with his head in his hand saying, you know, how do we get to a place where well, all these he, circles he, intersect? A mayor, a mayor is in the worst of all circumstances, yes. right? Yes. Because um, people say they want MPs to be more independent. No, 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 no. They do not want their MPs more independent because no. then you'll have the council situation and you'll have no leadership. You'll have no accountability because um, accountability just becomes this amorphous thing. Mm -hmm. And I, as I travelled around councils uh, as Minister of Local Government, what you'd find is there'd be councillors sitting there for 25 years on the council and a mayor would come along and the mayor couldn't do a thing, but everyone Correct. would vote for the mayor because of their vision, but they're totally ha hamstrung uh, by the, the councillors. Oh yeah, I'm not sure about that. And then the other thing I noticed, uh, Morris, is the chief executive has enormous power yes. in local council compared yes. to central government. That, that's true. And what makes me laugh is, I mean, I'm an elected ward councillor for the Howick Ward. Howick Ward is bigger than any other city in New Zealand other than Wellington and Christchurch. Oh, really? It's My ward is bigger than Hamilton. My ward is bigger than Dunedin in terms of population. Yeah. And you know, of course, so it's yeah, the, yeah. and there's only two councillors for a ward bigger than those cities, and if you take Gore, where the big war's going on at present, 
you could fit gore into one little corner of the Howard yeah. Ward. It's so, but the problem is that that the mayor gets elected and everyone says, I like what he's saying about this and I like what he's going to do about that. And he gets there and he goes, well, uh, I'm going to try. And to be fair, Brown is trying his best to get there. Let, let me give you one little example. And I think this will bring hundreds into perspective, but this is just one. The council owns about 18.1% of Auckland airport shares. So we don't get a director on the board because you've got to be at 21% to qualify for a director. So we don't get any say in the direction of that company if it decides to build new runways or a flash big international or domestic terminal. That is the directors of that company that decide and the council owning 18.1 has no say. The first thing that I think is quite frightening is there are some councillors saying, well, we should buy more of that company so we get to the 21 and we can have a director on it. Now, the first thing they don't understand is that under the Companies Act, if we had a director that we appointed to the port, to the Auckland Airport, they have to they have to act in the best interest of, of the company, not the shareholder. Yes. And so if the airport wants to build a new terminal for $3.9 billion, they have to be voting according to what's best for the company. Or they can be charged. Or they can be charged. So that's the first point. The second point is uh, the dividend we've got back from Auckland Airport over the last three years, and I'm really good at numbers because I can remember these off by heart, the dividend for the last three years has been zero, zero, and zero. So we've had no dividend back from those shares, which are worth around $2.3 billion. But we've got 11.7 billion of debt and paying. Fortunately, some of it's or quite a lot of it's been hedged, and we've been paying still modest interest rates. But as those hedge lines come off over the next few years, we've got to go to the market. And you may or may not have spotted, but interest rates have been just creeping up slightly. And so you've got way more cost for the interest foregone than you have what you'd get back, even if the best of times what the dividend would be. So my view is it's a lay down Mazir. Why would you hold on to shares in a company you have no say in for which what you're getting back by way of dividend, even the best of times, is absolutely dwarfed by how much your interest costs are on that same level of debt you could reduce? But I'm telling you right now, I don't think there are 11 councillors prepared to vote for the sale of the Auckland Airport shares. I might be wrong. I hope I'm wrong. But on best count, I can come to about seven or eight or maybe nine. It's extraordinarily uh, depressing. And the other thing I suspect you're finding, and this was my disappointment about Auckland Council, I expected with one council, the New Zealand Herald in particular, to do a much better analysis, because there's just one council, right? Yes. Of the fiscal future of the council, uh, the policy direction of the council, particularly as it affects housing costs and land costs. And there is zero analysis. If you asked the punter in the street about the 
fiscal makeup of Auckland Council or how its policies were driving up prices, they wouldn't have the have a clue. No, and they couldn't find out by reading the Herald. Well, I, I want to share with you just one set of numbers because I remember at the time that you were putting the reform through, mm-hmm. the argument that was put by you and me, because I used to give these speeches, is if we take seven and make them into one, we will get efficiency gains with regards to staffing. Mm-hmm. You will not need seven human resource departments. You'll That's only right. need one. You won't need seven accounting departments. You'll only, you won't need seven uh, um IT systems, we can migrate everybody into a common platform and big savings with regards to maintenance and upgrades and so on. And it's a it's an absolute real world story that happens in business. When people merge a whole lot of disparate operations and, and refine them, they get enormous savings. They can reduce their total full-time equivalent staff. Well, I'll give you some numbers. At the time that the seven councils were made into one, the total full-time equivalent staff was just on 10,000. It's now 12,800. Unbelievable. So so instead of getting a realistic reduction in the total staff because Mm -hmm. of the efficiency gains that should have been able to be gained by that new structure, we've actually had a dramatic increase in the total full-time equivalent staff. And I don't understand that. I just, that's the only reason I stood. I'm in my 70s and deciding, you know, retirement looked very good and happy to do other things and love going to the beach to Nui and spending a time on the beach. And I thought, no, I'm not prepared to sit back and see what was a structure that should have been able to deliver fantastic outcomes, have delivered huge staff increases, huge cost explosions, huge levels of debt. And it its day of reckoning is, is, well, it's here now. And the other thing that I didn't mention. By the before, way, when we did the reform, yeah. of course, we we sacked everyone and we rolled in the lower levels because we didn't have time. And we lost over 2,000 for management. Right. Right. From this, because you didn't need, as you say, uh, right. seven HR departments. And so 2,000 just disappeared out the door. And the savings day one uh, were significant. But of course, politics being politics, and I'm not even sure if we voted centre-right councillors in, but we voted in lefty mayors, and spending just goes up and up and up and up. And Len Brown and Phil Goff are never going to be the characters that will put a lid on it. And now we have Wayne Brown, who would put a lid on it, but he's hamstrung. Yeah, because the structures don't allow. He can't walk in there and say, I got elected on selling the airport shares, yeah. so tomorrow we're making an announcement we're selling them. He can't, get the, the, he can't get the chief executive in and say, cut the budget by 20%, you choose. No, can't. And that's, and that's what I've actually tried. Now, what we can do in the long-term plan, because this is the next piece of the jigsaw that everyone really – I mean, I didn't even understand this quite well. You can't make changes to your annual budget no. if you didn't put them into your long-term plan no. because then people couldn't have expected this to come and so you've given them an unexpected change. Now, imagine if central government could not make changes unexpectedly by announcing GST one day, as Roger Douglas did. Yeah. 
no, sorry, Roger, that's not in our long-term plan. You can't bring a tax called GST in. The, the, the central government couldn't function like that. So at least after we've got this annual budget finished, which is next month has to be done, I've got a chance as the chairman of the expenditure control to get a complete review of that long-term plan and that spending. But again, it's no point me saying all of that if I get it 19 votes against and one in favour being myself. So you've got to get something that the, the majority of councillors can support. And it's really difficult because they go back to their own patch and there, there are people saying, oh, I don't want you to cut our early childhood cowrie kids thing. And I keep going back and saying, please tell me if you think local government should be about supporting early childhood education because mm. that's not our role. And mm. we've got a healthy eatings program and a smoking cessation program with staff. And again, they're all very laudable aims in life. We should be trying to get people to stop smoking and we should get people trying to eat healthily, but it's not the role of a ratepayer-funded council. The other thing I notice, Morris, is all your information funnels up to the chief executive and then to the council. Now, when you're in cabinet, you have multiple government departments. And if a minister or one particular government department is a bit off course, you actually get contestable advice. Yep. And ministers get told, oh, you know, that department that the Honourable Morris Williamson's in charge of have got a crazy idea here. You might want to ask some questions about it at Cabinet. Yes. Now, that's actually happens, doesn't it? Oh, more than happens. It's quite the norm. And the other thing is quite the norm. I put up several things like I, I put up a roading proposal in the 90s called Better Transport, Better Roads. And it had the support of the Business Roundtable and the Chambers of Commerce and the, the Road and Trucking Association. And it was to try and turn the roads, which are run as almost a social welfare operation because there is local roads and there is uh, state highways run by the New Zealand Transport Agency and they don't even connect. And so I was trying to turn them into a commercial operation with a balance sheet and have to show return on investment and, and only invest in properties that, that had a proper return and so on. And I, I failed miserably because it just literally went wild with the contestable advice coming from other people. Oh, well, you know, that'll be too damaging to the local councils in our area and so on. And it, and it, and it failed. And Treasury pr pretty much put a kibosh on it and it died. We, the Better Transport, Better Roads is a lovely document that finally I couldn't get across the line. But Treasury were able to really put a blowtorch on anyone coming up with ideas mm -hmm. if they felt that it wasn't worth my... I, at that stage, I went and got a T-shirt printed I've still got it somewhere in my file. It's got cut out the middleman, vote treasury. <laughs> and um, But there's not that discipline within, within no. local government. We don't have and a treasury department coming in and saying to, you know, community services or whatever, you've had a dramatic blowout in your spending for the last four years, and this time your budget is going to stay at zero-based budget, no increase at all, unless you can bring a particular application that's got some real merit and can we can sit there and say, actually, that stacks up better than some spending elsewhere that we can now make a cut to? <coughs> you're self-accepted self and Wayne Brown accepted because 
Um, I would describe you both as fiscal conservatives and business oriented and realists. That's not the type of person that's attracted to stand for local government. No. And it's certainly not the type of person that's attracted to work in local government. Correct. So, yeah, I mean, I, I feel good and bad about having won. I'm pleased that I got on the council, but what I now realise, I, I probably already knew it. In fact, I'm, I'm sure I knew it. What I didn't know is how bad it is in order to try to affect change. You have way more impact, even just as an ordinary caucus member, to taking a caucus paper to the caucus, getting it considered, getting it put up to the cabinet eventually, and finally getting it done. So I know a lot of people in Auckland who, when I've asked them, you know, would you be prepared to put your name forward and stand for the council? I, I just get the most guffawing laughter. Yes. You have got to be kidding. And I yes. said, no, no, people like you would make a really valuable contribution. You've got to be kidding. But of, course, but, of course, if you had 11, staunch and true, yeah. you'd change the world. You you would, but I don't know how you will ever get 11 staunch and true uh, because everybody takes account of local concerns. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm in favour of this, but my local board needs that money to provide, you know, here in Howick, they run movies in the park nights where they hire huge TV screens and take over a park and put all these big speakers around and you can come to the park and watch a movie. And yet in my ward, I would say that the average house has got a 65-inch LED high-quality screen in most rooms, got a Netflix account, got a, a you know Hulu or whatever other accounts you can have, and can see any movie whenever they want on any screen. And I don't know why ratepayers would fund such a thing. No. I am a great fan. You may not know of him, but uh, just let me make this little point of a, uh, a professor called Victor Davis Hanson. Um, who now uh, is at the Hoover Institute. And he wrote a very interesting book that you may care to read called The Dying Citizen. And it's a shocking analysis that I, that actually took my head off. And the concept is over 30 or 40 years in America, and when I was reading this, I was thinking how horrific this is. And then you realize actually it's probably even worse here in New Zealand. The middle class have been destroyed. Mm -hmm. And by that, he means the ability to leave school, get a job, get married, get a house, and have children and be mortgage free, you know, in 25 years and live well. And so we now live in a situation in particularly Auckland, but elsewhere too where having a job doesn't allow you to own a home. Correct. I've got three kids all in their 20s or one just turned 30, and none of them, they all live at home still, yeah. and they all earn good money, but what they earn will be nowhere near enough to get on the property ladder. And I, I think that we've let us so I, I love that article I read yesterday by, oh, by Oliver Hart. Oh, yes. I know Damien Grant wrote an article and said, yes. it's not that we've got a cost of living crisis, it's just that we're bloody poor. Yes, but that destruction 
of the ability of your children to own a home is a direct consequence of decisions made by Auckland Council and central uh, it's government. Bigger, it's bigger than that. It's a, a, a central government decisions as well that we yeah. keep printing money that we haven't got and funding things that we can't afford. Yeah. But, yeah, councils have contributed to it, definitely. Yeah, and, and here we are destroying the life chances of a generation and a generation to come, and we can't be bothered to get 11 people to put their hand up to fix it. Because you could, couldn't you? You could if, open up if land. You, if you could, you could find, open. If you could find 11 stunningly capable business people that really knew how to turn a business around, find where the fat is and rip it out, get a really high performing outcomes and delivering of service and holding people to account. If you could find 11 of those that would stand, I would happily quit and let one of them take my seat right oh, now. Yeah. But the problem we've got is I've tried with so many people that I think have that that sort of qualification, and they look at you like you've got to be out of your cotton-picking mind. Why would I ever do such a thing? But surely so, there comes a point of public service and giving back. Well, hopefully. Um, look at my I, – again, go back to my pendulum argument at the beginning. I think the pendulum will swing back. Yes. But, but again – if you look at the, some of the people that were on the council back in the 50s and the 60s, many of them were senior business people. Many of them were senior people at running uh, companies and operations and really knew about budgets and, and, and what a balance sheet looked like and so on. The, the problem is that's – but it's true of parliament. I mean, right now, the number of people that come to Parliament that their highest qualification is they were either, you know, a union official or – had it's not got the appeal that or, public or service national party researcher, you know, to or whatever, to, to both or whatever. sides, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, people will say, Oh, well, you're denigrating individuals who might be quite capable, and that's true. But what I am saying is it used to attract. I've got a particular person I know well in Christchurch who is the most articulate speaker. He is hilariously funny. He is incredibly competent. He's running a very successful business. And I said to him, mate, if they could get you into the parliament, you would make the world of difference. And he looked at me like I was mad. And he said, I, I pay more in tax than I'd ever earn as a member of parliament. Mm -hmm. And by the way, your private life will be pulled to pieces. Did you ever you know, have sex with some girl at the university when you weren't married or something 50 years ago. And I'm not having that level, of, even though I don't think he's got anything bad in his closet because we've all got something. But he just says, why would you do it? And I would have wished that the world was the other way, that there would be a clamoring of really top-notch capable people have said, I've made a lot of money. I've been very successful. My kids have all got good marriages and jobs and so on. I'm going to devote some of my hours into trying to change this. Do you think a lot of the problem stems back to the legacy media and how they report politics and how they approach candidates, particularly candidates of a centre-right persuasion? Yes, I do. And I know, for example, the Herald 
have beaten to death one of the councillors here in Howick, the other councillor, Sharon Stewart, because she has voted against Phil Goff's budget and she voted year on year about it and said it was wrong and it was spending money we didn't have. And the 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 journalists on the Herald write dreadful stuff about Sharon Stewart, just really awful stuff. She's a lovely lady. But every time she stands, well, I don't actually mind whether she's lovely. I'd prefer someone that I didn't like as yeah. long as they were really good at what they did. But every time she stands, the voters of this ward give her top-notch billing. She beat me easily to get top-notch. And so you say, well, who knows best? Some journalist at the Herald who decides he'll sit and interview his typewriter or the vast bulk of the people that have, she's represented out here for year on year on year, and they vote her in again over the time. I'd take the voters' view of that any day over what a Herald journalist thinks. Well, and she's also putting herself out there for the vote. Correct. Correct, and has to, and that's a good thing. If people don't like you, that's why I like voting, because if people don't like you, they will sling you out. In 2002, when National fell right into the toilet and were literally gone, we got 20.9% of the party vote. Labor won the party vote in my electorate of Pakaranga so comfortably it's not funny, but I still got elected in the constituency vote. Yeah. And because they thought I was a good local MP but didn't like what my party stood for. Mm. And I think at the last election, you you know this, I'm sure, but at the last election, National didn't win one electorate party vote except for Epsom. Mm. They didn't win one electorate in the country party vote except for Epsom. Amazing. Tell me, um, the Herald are really doing a number on Wayne Brown, right? Yes, isn't that disgusting? It's, it is. But you know what? I, what I love about Wayne Brown, and there are many things I like about him, but one of the things is he doesn't care. You know, if you're a new I, – I can remember when I first got to Parliament in 87, if I got a nice story written about me and every now and then someone would write, oh, he's a you know, real go-getter and he's really trying to – I think, oh, that's great. And if I got a bad story, I'd sit at home and mope and think, oh, I don't care anymore. You know, if the Herald want to write something ghastly about me, go to it. I don't care because I'm not there to get re-elected. I'm there to make a difference. And the same with Wayne Brown. He is there to make the change that is needed. And when he sees all these ghastly stories, his attitude is, you know, that's them. Who cares? Let's get on with what we're here for. But it's fascinating, isn't it? Because Wayne Brown stood up put out his, you know, billboard. And his flyers. And and his flyers. Gets elected. Everyone knows who he is. Everyone yep. knows what he said. Everyone knows who he stood for him. Yep. Meanwhile, you have Simon Wilson at the Herald. And who's that other character that's been there for a million years, writes about local government? Oh, Bernard Orsman. Bernard Orsman. These two guys are totally unelectable, right? You wouldn't put them in charge of a lemonade stand, right? And they are sitting there writing this commentary like they're philosopher kings who really should be running the council. Yeah, and I've always felt that if that's how you feel, if you believe that you know how this place should be run and it's not being done that way, a really simple solution, stand. Mm. Put your name on a ballot paper and stand. Or if you're a journalist, write the stories. Not 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 engage in subterfuge and sabotage, and um, you know these 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 Wayne Brown 
Logan Monot, Lynn Brown, Phil Goff, they were elected. But, of course, they go soft on the candidates whose policies they support. I mean, it's just literally this idea now, isn't it, that if you're a centre-right person, you are a bad person morally and you need to be exposed. And you can see Christopher Luxon trying to protect himself mm-hmm. by pretending he's a lefty. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Um, yes, but I'm not that sort of a person. I don't care. Yeah, and I John be- Key was the same. Like you had to pretend that you'd be just like Jacinda or just like Helen Clark, but different. Yeah, and I guess that, well, there is a bit of an element of why you do that, and I, I, don't, I don't agree with this, but i tell you what, everything in the world, everything, because I did a maths and physics degree, everything in the world is governed by a bell curve, a normal distribution. Yes. And there is always, it doesn't matter whether it's the competency of the doctors in the health system or whatever, there are some at the top end that are spectacularly outstanding world class. There are some at the bottom end that are just awful and shouldn't be practicing, and the vast bulk are gathered around the center. Okay? Now, this problem with voters, it's like that. The vast bulk are gathered around that center. And there are the people who vote for ACT at one extreme. There are the people that vote for the Greens at another extreme. But the vast bulk sit around that centre. And so if you want to be government, you've got to slide slightly into the other side's margin. Mm. Now, you don't have to. You can stand really strongly on some hardline stuff, which is where I would prefer. But as John Key will say, you'll have some of the best policies in the country and never get elected to implement them. But, of course, the difficulty is that centre has been shifted dramatically. Yes. It's and been moving to the left over the years. I mean, if, now, you, if you... What talk, is now centre used to be extreme left. Yeah. Norm Kirk, he would make Ruth Richardson look like a lefty. Yes. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And and that's, that's the creep. Um, if we look ahead... To your term, how long you've been in council now, Morris? Six months. So you've got two and a half years. Well, that's what's supposed to happen, I guess. <laughs> what do you hope to achieve in that two and a half years now? Well, first of all, we've got to try and get the the, the annual budget for the mayor across the line and get that dealt to, and the law just dictates because if we can't get a a balanced budget over, there is just the spectre of the government. We have to appoint commissioners to come in and take over the place. So I think we'll get there. I think nothing focuses the mind like the side of the guillotine, and a lot of councillors will say, well, we don't want to do this, but if we don't actually get an agreed budget together, we may not have jobs. If you think of the councillors putting the notice of motion in the Gore Council right now, they've got to think very carefully, do we want to cause cause this ruckus and suddenly not have jobs ourselves? because that's going to be the option. What I really want to achieve is the big changes, the structural changes in the whole place. I mean, the the the, the floor space that we have at the pricing per square metre is ridiculous compared to the buildings we still own and don't occupy. Vodafone guys said to me one day, they moved out of that magic building down at the Viaduct, beautiful big Vodafone. It was glass and mirrors and stunning. They moved out because they said they just couldn't afford the floor space rental. And it got occupied straight away by Auckland Transport, who took it over. 
<laughs> I bet the owner was rubbing their hands. And so your big focus is going to be on the long-term plan. Yeah. The structural change is where we've got to dramatically reduce spending across the board and get back to a realistic set of outcomes that are measurable, that can be held to account, that departmental managers have to deliver on. Uh, people should not keep their jobs forever and a day. I I've been on the board of a company here called Holyoke Industries for 21 years, and we held managers to account for delivering output onto the loading dock at a price that was competitive and a product that was competitive and so on. And if they failed once, then it would be coming and talk about why it's gone wrong. If they failed twice, it would be, this is really serious and we can't keep funding this department. And if it was a third time, you're out, you're gone. Yeah. And and that's how it has to be in any organisation, be it a sporting team. You know, I'm sure that... Uh, Razor, when he's got his all-black team together next year and he's got them, he can't have a, a wing who keeps dropping the ball and failing to, to run when he's supposed to. And he could say, look, I can't keep you in here if you're not delivering what we've set you as your KPIs. So set a whole lot of very specific KPIs, set a whole lot of specific outcomes, rein in the spending monster and say, we've got to get ourselves back in real terms to what this council was spending when it was first formed 12 years ago. Mm, absolutely. And then Harvard. Oh, um, well, I'd like to go further after that, but, <laughs> yeah, but you know, get it back. when you're trying, no, to, when you're trying that, to climb Mount Everest, getting to the base camp is the first point along the way. First step one, step on the way. And, and so, Morris, thank you for coming on Reality Check Radio. I'm talking to Morris Williamson, a 30-year veteran of Parliament and now a newbie on the Auckland Council, discovering how hard it is with the legislation in place, the councillors who are cats, trying to herd them, and uh, a person who, no matter what the subject, uh, tells you how he sees it and not too worried about the political consequences, which is why we enjoy having him on, because he might get into trouble. <laughs> It's always it's always one of those. I can imagine, Morris, Jim Bolger having conniptions if you were ever going to go on the home show or give an interview because um, you are a politician, despite your long service, who always says exactly what you think. But I, I think the public want you to do that. And, yeah. and I like the idea that if they don't like me, they'll throw me out. Yeah, well, good on you. And Pakaranga was an electorate that National didn't even hold when I first stood here. So this mm. idea it was a blue ribbon seat that we have for life. I turned it in by the second uh, term. I turned it into the biggest majority in New Zealand's history. One mm. is really proud of this. The biggest majority in the old first past the post had been Michael Joseph Savage with 8,700. I won the Pakaranga seat a second time in 1990 with a 9,300 majority. And that was in some cases, having upset people and said some pretty rough stuff about what I thought needed to happen or what I liked and didn't like. And I still remember an old lady at one of the shopping centres saying to me one day, I don't like you, but I will vote for you because I think you'll get some things done. Isn't that great? Well, I've always thought Michael Joseph Savage, Morris Williamson. And, <laughs> yeah, and, I should not have compared my that No, was and, and I've, no, got no, that was... I've got a picture of both of you in my living room. <laughs> 
That above was a the far thing to compare myself to him. <laughs> Morris, always a pleasure. I've been speaking to Morris Williamson uh, on the council, Auckland Council, long-time national MP, MP for Pakaranga, all-round good guy, and uh, fantastic to interview because um, unlike our Prime Minister, Morris Williamson doesn't actually have to pre-formulate his answers. Uh, he actually is thinking about what he's doing each day. And so when you ask him about what he's doing each day, he can actually answer it. Uh, you're on Reality Check Radio, Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Thank you for listening. You're listening to Real Talk on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Good morning. You're on Reality Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Uh, Send us a text, 2057, email, inbox at realitycheck.radio. Oh, such good news. No, not good news, stupendous news. It's um, nothing's excited me more in a long, long time in the public sphere. And it's this. So the wonderful Ali Cook uh, got busy and did a parliamentary petition and gathered up signatures, and very enthusiastically did a wonderful job, and I signed it. But to be honest, I was extremely cynical, not of Ali Cook or the people that signed it, but the way that the parliamentary system would treat them, because petitions turn up all the time, MPs receive them, they go up to a select committee and they say, oh, you had a look at that job done. And so I thought there's a lot of energy and excitement going to this to no great effect, but not anymore. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Ellie Cook, she's hit the jackpot, and it's going to need a bit of help, but, oh, man, this is going to be wonderful. We have an opportunity here to achieve a significant result and a world first. Let me explain. So Ali's petition is for a royal commission into the vaccine injuries. I'm not a fan of a royal commission into this because I feel as though it disappears uh, behind closed doors, government control it, government appoint it, government set the terms of reference. Oh, but there's something wonderful happened because according to Ali, the parliament have said that she can append testimony, which is just to say people emailing in, detailing their vaccine injuries. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my giddy aunt. This is wonderful news. What we need to do is get lots and lots and lots of people to email Ali all into Wharton, and append these stories. Don't have to be very long. Could be a paragraph, could be a page, could be a book. But we have a world-leading opportunity to highlight the cases of vaccine injury here in New Zealand. And as everyone knows, I'm a single-issue voter. This is the number one issue for me in politics. Now, I'm going to give out these emails. So you can email, uh, have people that you know or family or people that have been bereaved, email alicook at alicook, A-L-Y-C-O-O-K-P-R at gmail.com. 
or email Linda Wharton at the Health Forum NZ at proteinprotonmail.com. Let me explain how this can work. So years and years and years ago, before most of you were born, I became an MP and I was horrified to discover that the IRD was bullying people, small people, small business people, in the most horrific of ways. You know, nasty, nasty staff members getting their bee in a bonnet and literally destroying people's lives. Sometimes just made up and indeed suicides. I discovered that there was absolutely no enthusiasm in Parliament to do anything about this. IRD's job was just to gather in the money so politicians could spend it. And everyone would say, oh, well, there's two sides to the story. And the IRD would just say, oh, privacy. And so they were operating with the most powerful um, laws imaginable without any transparency and without any accountability. Indeed, there's a reverse burden of proof that the IRD operates under. So they can, the IRD can assert you owe money and it's up to you to prove that you don't. It's extraordinary. And sometimes the IRD was just pulling numbers out of thin air. I kid you not. Oh, you owe a million dollars. What? Prove it. And of course, you go and tell your friends or your neighbours um, or your MP saying, look, you know, the IRD is treating me badly. You just look at them as if they were a crook. And I looked into a couple of cases and discovered they were telling me the truth. And then I discovered literally a tsunami of cases. And I didn't know what to do about it. And I got a couple of cases on the home show. And then I was able to convince the Finance and Expenditure Select Committee, which is just a group of MPs representing all the parliaments, all the parliament parties, who sit in a room off to the side of parliament. And uh, I got them to look into these cases, which seemed almost a trivial thing. But it wasn't. Because I then encouraged people to make a submission to the select committee about their experience of dealing with the IRD. It started out with the New Zealand First MPs, the National MPs, the Labour MPs, the Green MPs. Oh, oh yeah, here we go. You know, bunch of grumbly business people. And maybe for the first one or two submitters, that was the case. But then, case by case, it changed. Because MPs, uh, just like you and I, you know, they feel for people. Um, they do have some sympathy. And they very much respond to individual cases. 
And so these poor taxpayers were turning up to this committee with their wives, explaining how the IRD had treated them. And they literally sometimes only have 10 minutes or 15 minutes, but they could get it across. And the MPs were absolutely horrified by it. Now, the interesting thing about these uh, submissions was they're in public. You can't choose to give a submission in private. So if you don't want your details made public, you're quite within your rights to make a private submission. And some taxpayers did. But mostly, they were happy to have the platform. And the media were there. And the TV, the radio, the Herald, the Dominion Post, as it was then, started to write these stories up because it was news. And the MPs had the IRD in the back of the room listening to these stories. And the MPs would turn to the IRD, oftentimes when everyone had left and it was private, and say, can you tell us what happened here? And they would fluff and look uncomfortable and not give a very good account. The committee travelled around New Zealand. It went to Auckland, Wellington, obviously. I think we went to Hamilton. I think we went to Christchurch. We might have gone to Dunedin because we had so many people uh, making submissions and it couldn't be ignored. I would suspect that we probably had 150-odd submissions, which doesn't sound a lot, but when you're sitting through this gut-wrenching testimony where literally people's lives have been destroyed, uh, it's powerful testimony. And, of course, it was being reported in the news. There's a big light being shone into it. And the IRD went from this secretive, behind-closed-doors, bully boy, enormous powers, lack of accountability, to becoming extremely transparent as this committee in public heard from taxpayers and as this committee demanded accountability of the IRD. The upshot of it was that the commissioner and deputy commissioner left, I use that word left uh, in quotes, um, the culture was, a parliamentary report was written that the culture had to be substantially changed and the legislation was rewritten, uh, not enough, but to shift the balance somewhat and to give a bit of breathing room to taxpayers who, through no fault of their own, were suffering um, poor circumstance. It was an amazing experience to me to realise that sometimes all you need is a public inquiry. And I say public inquiry because, again, this wasn't a royal commission. It was a public inquiry in public. If I had a choice looking at vaccine injuries between a public inquiry and one before the Health Select Committee, I'd take the Health Select Committee every time 
first, it doesn't cost any money because the MPs are being paid anyway, and um, they just need to do their job. But it gives uh, citizens an opportunity to come before their elected representatives and tell their story, and for the representatives to have to listen to it, and for the news media to report it, and for the parliament to have to come up with a response. And I promise you, they will be moved by the stories. They won't be able to be dismissed. So here's what we need to do. We need to get uh, the injured and the bereaved to be contacting Ali and Linda and giving a paragraph or a page or a book to them of their experience of their injury or their loss. And that needs to be appended. Now, it doesn't need to take more than 10 minutes. You could take a week, but we need to get it in, and we need to get it in before the 30th of May. So speed is of the essence. They get appended to the petition, and then we have this wonderful opportunity because you can always go and see your MP. We'll get the names of the politicians who are on the Health Select Committee, and we can make an appointment and go and see them and say, look, we really need to have an opportunity to, to, to speak to the committee. And then the committee have to open it up, and then you have your inquiry. I think it's a game changer. I think it's amazing. Imagine having the opportunity of coming to the parliament and speaking to MPs from every political party in a respectful forum, in a forum where the MPs have to listen and where the MPs have to prepare a report, and that report itself goes to Parliament. That's the opportunity that we have, dear listeners. It is huge. So I would encourage everyone who is injured, no matter how small, how slight, or how bad and how big, to write it down, and flick an email to Ali or to Linda and append it. Now, you don't have to go before the select committee. You can just provide that written submission. But I imagine there's a lot of people that do want to tell Parliament what happened to them. And I saw these people at the protest. And at that stage, no MP would come out and talk with them or listen to them or hear their concern. Well, now, thanks to Ali, thanks to Linda, you have the opportunity to walk into Parliament, to sit in the select committee room in front of the MPs and tell your story. And isn't that all that we need? And won't that in of itself 
make all the difference in the world? I could not be more excited. All I want for my vote this year is a parliamentary inquiry into the vaccine injuries and the deaths. We know they've happened. We know they're happening. The argument is only about how big a problem it is. Well, we've got an opportunity to look into it. I don't know of anything right now that's more significant. Now, here are the emails. Ali Cook, A-L-Y-C-O-O-K-P-R, Ali Cook PR at gmail.com or to Linda, the health forum NZ, no dots, at protonmail.com, P-R-O-T-O-N mail.com. Anyone that you know, please encourage them to send a, a note in. It could make such a difference to such a lot of people. And we need to do this so we never go through what we went through again. And how amazing would it be if New Zealand led the world in having a look at this? And that's the potential that we have with dear Ali Cook's petition. Do it. You're listening to Reality Talk Radio. It's... Huh. Reality Talk Radio, Reality Check Radio, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Uh, flick us a text, 2057, or an email, inbox at realitycheck.radio. Thank you for listening. i got to say I love it, but what I love the most is Ali Cook's petition. Oh, what I desire more than anything is that parliamentary inquiry. I want to see New Zealanders appearing before that committee and explaining what this vaccine has meant for their health. Right now, we're being gaslit. Well, with Ellie Cook's petition, you could see the most biggest spotlight that we have in the country being shone on it. And that's what we need. Thanks for listening. You're listening to Real Talk on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Oh, what a great morning we've had. We've had Wally Richards on The Gardening Man answering your questions. Do keep them coming in, uh, and we can keep covering them. Uh, text us your gardening questions to 2057 uh, and email us them at inbox at realitycheck.radio, and we'll address them all. Also, if it's an emergency, you can uh, ring Wally straight 0800 and Wally will answer. You know, he doesn't, you don't go to a machine. You get Wally. You get the real Wally. And he likes being rung with problems because he needs to interrogate you uh, about exactly what's happening and he can suggest a solution for you. So he was always wonderful. And then we had the wonderful Morris Williamson who just tells you what's on his mind. And it was an interesting insight uh, into council which I really enjoyed because I've often wondered what it was like. Parliament, when I turned up there, was a very bizarre place, very odd, very peculiar. And then after a while, it just becomes what it is, and you accept it, you know. 
turning up and this is how it works and you figure it out. And then Morris has gone across to council. And so I was very interested in getting to understand better what it is to uh, be elected to office and how you can make a difference. And as Morris says, the difficulty is you need colleagues. Uh, it's not like a, a party system where you can have that leadership because you're just a vote, even if you're the mayor. So it's having a big impact on our lives, local council and central government right now, particularly for our kids. And we need to be doing much, much better. And we need to be thinking about having good men and women stand and making a difference. And with Morris on his own, or Wayne Brown on their own, can't be done. So we need to be working on that if we're going to have that pendulum come back. So thank you for listening. You're with Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on Reality Check Radio. Lovely to be in your home. Lovely to be in your ear. I thank you so much for listening. Take care. You've heard the words open, fair, both sides of the story. It's easy to say them, but practicing them often seems like a bridge too far. New Zealand, it's time for a reality check. Reality check. RCR, Reality Check Radio. Rational discussion, common sense, and open debate for real. With me, Paul Brennan. You know, you just can't make this stuff up. You couldn't write the script. Veteran broadcaster Peter Williams. Where is the evidence they actually make a difference? It turns out that was a very fair question to ask. Taking on the mainstream, Chantel Baker. Mainstream media, as usual, in their little perch. The man who cares so much and whose background is for real, Rodney Hyde. The doctors don't believe them. They can't get ACC. They can't work. They're told it's all in their head. Along with a raft of contributors to inform, entertain and bring the truth back to New Zealand media. It's time for a reality check, all right. RCR, Reality Check Radio at www.realitycheck.radio. We've arrived. You've been listening to Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on RCR, Reality Check Radio.